The Connecticut Music Oral History Podcast is a deep dive interview series with musicians, artists, conduits, collectors, and dedicated fans, focusing on 20th century Connecticut music history. This project preserves narratives, heralds unsung movers and shakers, and defines Connecticut's influential role in cultural history. I'm your host, Brendan Toller. I'm an artist, a musician, a filmmaker, and marketing manager of the incredible Verso Studios at the Westport Library, where this very podcast is being produced. Verso Studios is a media resource and production hub, serving as an inclusive, empowered, future-forward cultural and learning center. A library branch of the 21st century, Verso Studios provides programming, commercial services, as well as educational and content creation opportunities. We have a state-of-the-art hybrid analog recording studio designed in part by Rob Froboni, the same guy who built Keith Richards' home studio down the road. We record bands, artists, audiobooks, podcasts, and everything in between. We have video production suites, classes, and events. Check us out at the Verso Studios website and on social media. Welcome back. After a long break, the Connecticut Music Oral History Podcast returns with an interview conducted all the way back in February of this year. It's a complete deep dive with hip-hop artist and documentary filmmaker Jim Slice. From growing up in and around the advent of hip-hop culture, performing all over the globe with New Haven's Steezo, and now documenting Connecticut's skinny boys and the legend of 70s funk band Skull Snaps, Jim Slice's story is integral to the foundation and evolution of hip-hop. Enjoy the ride. What's up, Jim? What's up? How you doing? I'm doing good. All right, Jim. What's your first musical memory? Personal memory? Um, uh, During my time or younger? Like, I can say, like, okay, coming from New Haven, Connecticut, New Haven once had a Coliseum, the New Haven Coliseum. So my first musical memory was my very first concert when I was a small kid, probably like 10 years old back then. And Rick James actually came to New Haven Coliseum. So that was my first time really being at a live show. You know, we always heard the records you hear radio, but that was my first time going to a live concert and actually seeing the artist. And then uh, later on, Tina Marie, he introduced Tina Marie. And the whole place went crazy because back then, Tina Marie was singing a song called Fire and Desire with Rick James, but everybody assumed she was black. So when she came out on stage and they, were, they seen she was white, the whole place like, oh, snap, you know. So, but that's my first musical experience, like a live concert in that way. And did you have like music around the house, you, you know, parents, aunts and uncles and stuff like that? Or Yeah, uh, I came up in that generation as a kid where our parents would clean the house. So late 70s, 70s, early 80s, parents would clean the house. Well, first you had to start off watching it. Anybody in my era know about the, the the cartoons that came on the weekends, the Super Friends and, and you know, all those other Laugh Olympics and anybody knows that. So once we got fi- um, finished watching that, at least when I finished watching it, then by um, noontime, Soul Train will come on. That's around the time my moms would clean the house, open up the windows, close the door, start cleaning, letting fresh air in. That's when I would go outside to play. So, um, but the music, even, you know, the Jackson Five definitely sliding the Family Stone, James Brown. So those are the records that I, my younger years, the groups that I've heard coming up because my aunt had a nice little forty-five collection. 
So I would always go in her room, try to play the records, but then she'll get mad. So my my mom's bought me, back in the day, Fisher Price used to make like in a little suitcase, a little turntable. So my mother bought me one of those. So at the age of like eight, I had my first turntable. But I would still go in my aunt's room and find the Jackson 5, 45s and play them and then you know the old thing get on the bed so you can see yourself in the mirror and then with a brush and start acting like you're singing so I went through that phase there um growing up so that's the kind of music that was in my household and then later on uh once my mother and father got married and they we were all together in one house my father had his style of music which was a lot of Stevie Wonder so it was Stevie Wonder Al Jarreau um, definitely a lot of Stevie Wonder. He, he had quite a few things, but it seemed like Stevie Wonder was his always his go-to to start off playing music. Stylistics, nah, not the stylistics. Yeah, the stylistics. Even my friend's house, a couple of houses down, because we we didn't like growing up. I didn't live in the projects, but I lived in the co-ops across the street from the projects. So even my friend's house, like his mother would do the same thing my mother was doing, and she was playing a lot of the dramatics stylistics, things like that, um, Blue Magic. So those are also other kind of groups that growing up you heard, you know, having a birthday party, the grown ups is always in charge of the music. So again, it was James Brown, Jackson 5, Sliding the Family Stones. Later on, Parliament came around. Where'd you, know, you grow up? New Haven. New Haven, I um, play Little League Baseball, Walter Pop Smith in New Haven. Um, but it was also split too, even though predominantly New Haven, but I spent a lot, also a lot of time in Yonkers because my mother's mother and father split up. So my my mother's mother, my grandmother, and her sister came to New Haven, so that's how I got here. So my mother's from Yonkers, but when I was born, she would try to be with around both parents. So I spent time in New Haven hanging out, and then on the weekends, I had to go to Yonkers and stay there for the weekend. Because my grandfather, I don't know if I should go this deep, but my grandfather was a boxer. And he grew up in a time where I think Jack Johnson, not grew up, but I think when I talked to him about it, Jack Johnson was like the famous boxer everybody wanted to be like in his era. So he wanted to be a champ like him. But he was from a very poor family, right? So what the mob would do is if you were a good fighter, what they would do is pay you to take some hits or, you know, take a fall. So when you're getting like, in the 70s, you're getting like five, $600 to do that. That's a lot of money back then. So he kind of started gearing himself towards that. Unfortunately, I don't think he did it as well. Now, when I was born, he was blind, but he ended up going blind because of the hits to the head in boxing. So uh, growing up, that's another part. It's kind of the reason why we was always back and forth to Yonkers because now he really, he couldn't, I guess, live his life. So I'm born, I grew up, he's already blind. And in the 70s, he's running the numbers out of Yonkers for the mob. So one thing I can say about the Italian mob, at least they didn't leave him hanging. He did them favors, so they did him favors. So he did work for the Italians. And, you know, back then when there was no air machines with balls in it back then, choosing the numbers. So back at that point, I think every place did it differently but in Yonkers what they did they had the Yonkers raceway so whatever horse came in first they'll pick a race whatever horse comes in first if it was a horse number eight that's the first number they'll pick another race and then so on and you got your three numbers 
So, yeah, you know, as a kid, I had to go to Yonkers and I would hang out. I wanted to play my Evil Knievel, my Rock'em Sock'em robots and stuff like that. But as a kid, sometimes on the weekends, I had to sit at a uh, in a little small kitchen with my grandfather and just talk to him and hang out. The phone would ring and I would just pick up the phone and go four, six, seven box, you know, two, five, two straight. OK, thank you. Hang up. He would keep it all in his head, which was amazing. Everything was in his head. At some points in time, there was always a brown paper bag that I would have to take around the corner to this barbershop. Um, so that, you know, not trying to go too hard into that type of lifestyle, but that's how he. Yeah, but that's how you grew up. So you already had that as kind of a. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, and, I, and I didn't ask for it. I didn't want to do it. You know what I mean? Some people will glorify. Ah, I came up. And sometimes I look about look back at him like. As a kid, I kind of knew it's something that's illegal or not really out there when it came to numbers, because I don't think it was legal back then. It didn't, you know, it's just like how marijuana is now. Oh, it was a bad taboo before. Oh, now, you know, you can go to a store and buy it. And now, you know, numbers, everybody can go to a store and play numbers. But before you had to know, you know, there were newspaper stands back then and newspaper stores and magazine stores. So back then you would go to those people. And there was a guy in there, and he'll take your numbers, and then they would go. And that's how they – it was It was real more of an underground thing. So, yeah, so he was doing that. And, I, you know, part-time in New Haven, and the Yonkers is doing that. And just back and forth, back and forth until I was 12, 13, because now I'm off on my own. You know, I'm hanging out. I got friends, you know, running here, running there. So I didn't do it as much. But my younger years, that's what it was like growing up. Mm. And then when does hip-hop come into the equation? Hip hop, like everyone else, people would talk about Curtis Blow, which probably about 1980, I think it was. My mother bought me a little box radio. It had one little speaker on the side, a tape deck, and then you had that red record button, right? And she had gave me two tapes with that that I would constantly play all the time. One of the tapes was uh, Curtis Blow's first album, and the other tape was Michael Jackson's Off the Wall album. Those are my only two um, tapes that I had. So I would play Michael Jackson, A-side, flip it over, play B-side, take Curtis Blow, put him in, play A-side, flip it over, play the B-side, take Michael Jackson, put him back in. I was just rotating those two tapes. So that was um, me starting to be, again, this that's probably like the second wave because the first wave was when my mother gave me my Fisher-Price turntable. The second wave is when she bought me a box radio. And then from there... Okay, when hip-hop comes in, there's one more section of music. It's a lot going on because now I had a friend that would play the piano. And we would play Little League Baseball together. And I knew he played the piano, but I didn't know he had a band. Or him and some other guys that I actually knew too. I didn't know they were a band. Like, that's like me and you hanging out. And we do our thing together. And then one day, like, I'm coming to my friend's house. You can come with me. And I find out, like, you're playing the guitar and you guys got to, like, I didn't know you guys did this, you know? So it was like that. So I tried to play the congas in their band, but then they kicked me out because I, was, I wasn't good. But I just wanted to be in the band because I see my friends doing it. And they were sounding real good, in my opinion, you know? So the flip side to that, me having the urge to play music, which then I told my mother I wanted to play the drums, Right. So he's like, you want to play an instrument? OK, nice. I'll get you something. What do you want to play? I, said, I want to play the drums. OK, fine. Here you go. Here's a guitar. So I'm taking guitar lessons. So this had to be around the age of 
eight or nine. Yeah, it had to be around nine because that's when I started playing Little League Baseball. So I stopped playing guitar lessons. I stopped doing that and I, I got serious about Little League Baseball because I was really good at that. And also with the guitar lessons, like it, it's really um, hectic on your fingertips. You get those lines in your fingers, like press hard, you know, to do all these notes and to learn all these certain notes. So at that time, I don't think I was ready for that part of it. And my aunt also, she was a piano player. Like she taught my little cousin, he, my cousin John John, he plays the piano real well based on his um, his mother just teaching him. So there was that part of it because I am, I am in a house at a point with a, a piano in there. Um, so, okay, so... My father's brother, my father's a family of 10. Like he, he's got 10 siblings, right? And f all of them know how to play instruments. Most of the brothers know how to play instruments. The flute, the bass guitar, my Uncle Parker was playing the drums. Then they had some friends. So back then they had a band growing up called the Bleachers. Then later on, and they, they've been around. Then later on, they became Rare View. So there's 45s, there's some 45s that's rolling out there by this band from New Haven called the Bleachers. Because back in Hamden, because my father's family was more living in Hamden, Connecticut at the time. So back then there was like this park, um, I think it was called Mill Rock Park, and there was some bleachers there and that's where they all hung out because it had like a rooftop over these bleachers, so from the sun and rain. So people just go there and hang out and that's what they did. So they named their first band called the bleachers and then later on they just changed the bleachers into rare view and then that's who they finished out as so they would play at toads so i you know my uncle paul i would go in his room and and when i'm at my grandmother's house go in his room and he would show me how to play the guitar and this was kind of simultaneously when i was playing the guitar before before i stopped or then i would go up in the attic space where my uncle parker was and he had his drum set up there so then they would play he would teach me how to like try to play the drums so I'll play the drums a little bit, but I never really got serious with that. Um, so then hip hop comes around, right? Now at this stage with the bleachers or with Rareview, and they did a lot at Toes Place. Some people out there will have heard of Rareview, the Rareview band. Um, now, you know, like early 80s, like everyone else, Curtis blows out with an album. Sugar Hill Gang comes out with an album. So I'm aware of hip hop now around, probably around seventh grade, all right? I'm at my grandmother's house and I see two guys that I know going to the store down on Broadway by in Yale area, right? So they're over on Broadway. I think it was a place called Upstairs Records. So I'm like, yo, where y'all going? It's like, we just walking to the store. So I run and tell my grandmother, like, Grand, can I go to the store with them? She was like, yeah, fine. So I walk to the store with them and we go up the stairs, this record store. So there's one DJ who's uh, up from New Haven, Connecticut called SW1. So he's in there and we're going through records. So I'm looking at him, you know, I'm just taking my fingertips and going through records too, but I don't know what I'm looking for. So he sees certain records. One had like an octopus on it. So he's grabbing two of those. So I couldn't understand that because growing up, you only played the one record and you put the needle on it. So he's grabbing two. So then we, we, um, we he he gets his records when we all we leave we're walking down the street. So I'm talking to him. And I'm like, I don't. How come you bought like two of each record? So he was like, Yo, because I'm gonna DJ. I'm gonna do such and such. And I didn't really understand that. So I'm asking questions. He was like, Yo, just watch when we get to my house. I'll show you. Because you had never seen it. I've before. never seen it before. So that was my first introduction to actually seeing this stuff. So at this point, I'm only at Curtis Blow's 
tape and Sugar Hill Gang's record. Yeah, that's the only thing I know about hip hop. And you know, Sugar Hill rappers delight, right? So we get to his house. He takes this sheet off, like because he had his dresser, you know, the, like what they call bureaus or the dresser with the mirror attached. So he rips the sheet off of it was laying on top, and there's two turntables and a mixer. So he puts both records on and he starts doing the DJ thing. And this the song that he was doing was called Rocket in the Pocket. Then the guy Calvin that was there, um, like, give me the microphone. So SW1 had a microphone, and Calvin's going, I said a hip hop, a hibbit. Like he's doing like some Nipsey Russell type of rhymes. He was going, I got Clark Gable on the turntable, like Nipsey Russell doing the hustle. He's saying stuff like that. It wasn't real like stuff you get, you know, today in type music. So I'm just sitting on the edge of you know, uh, SW1's bed and, and just like checking how everything goes and how he's scratching the records and coming back and it's just like one big loop. So that's the first time I physically see DJing. All right, cool. What was that Octopus record? Is that a famous the Octopus? Thing? Yeah, the Octopus records were the breaks and beats that's back right. then. Yep. So, and that's my first time. He just put, he looked at it like this, like, oh, this got this on it. So I'm just looking like I see an octopus. That's all I know. So he knows what he's looking for. So, all right. So this is my first time seeing somebody really DJ. All right, cool. And I leave it at that. That was cool. Then trying to keep the time frame correct. Now we're going into eighth grade. So now my mother and father buy, they buy a house out deep ham. Then we leave New Haven and we go out like deep ham, like Mount Carmel area. Um, so now I'm out that way. I meet some new friends and stuff. And then there's one dude, his name was Reggie. He was like, yo, I want to take you to this guy named Derek's house. So I pretty much go through the same thing. So we go to Derek's house. I meet Derek. We want to play some basketball. So he lived like behind the school. So we go over to school for a bit. We shoot some hoops, right? Then we go back to his house. Once we go back to his house, guess what? Here I go again. We get back in his house and he rips the, um, Cheat off the bed. I guess that's how they was doing it back then. He ripped not off the bed, but off the bureau. He was the same setup on his bureau. I guess that's where cats had to do it. And um, and he starts DJing now. Back now, when this happens, the the records, the music, the time frame. So just to give you a time frame, Candy Girl is out by New Edition. Uh, what's her name? Oh, Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blowing my Tony, ba Tony Basil. Yeah, 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 she's out. Michael Jackson's um, Beat It, not Beat It. Billy Jean is out. So those are the records he's putting on. Um, then there was the other record. I forget the group that used to sing it, but it was like, as the beat goes on, as the beat goes on. I forget the group that was sing that. And there was a break in there where the DJs would cut it up. Then it was like, pump me up, pump, 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 oh, pump And the beat up. goes on is Sonny and Cher, I think. That's what the, I don't, yeah. you sure? Well, it's a 60s record, but maybe it was, a, a lot of people did somebody that Somebody might have did it over, yeah, right, exactly. I got you. I think yeah. they, you're right, I think yep. they did do, okay. But somebody, I think, did it over. I don't think it was Sonny and Cher. <laughs> you you would have known. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think that version was Sonny and Cher, because I, I know Cher's voice, yeah. I'm familiar yeah. with her. Yeah. So, all right, so those are, just to give you a time frame where the music was at back then. Oh, and it was um, the musical Youth Pass, the duchy on the left-hand side. So these are the records that are going on the turntables. So I'm sitting there, and Derek, you know, he's doing his thing. It's his set. Then he gives it to, I said I was with this dude named Reggie, but I was actually with this dude named Alan now, because he gives the, um, the headphones to Alan, and Alan jumps up there, and he does his thing a little bit. He wasn't that good, you know. 
So then, when, you know, Alan did his thing for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and he turns to me, you want to try? No, first he gives it to Derek. Derek gives it to me like, you want to try? So I'm like, all right. So I get up there. I ain't know what I was doing. I just know you had to make that noise, chicka, 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 and then throw the record. I ain't know nothing about you. I ain't think you had to be on beat. You know, I just know, okay, the beat's playing, chicka, 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 and just throw the other one on, slide the thing over, and go back and do that again. So then Derek was like, man, you got to stay on beat. So he started schooling me, like, you know, start off with something simple like Billy Squire's Big Beat, boom, ba-bat, boom, boom. So that was where he got me started to where I now I can start because it's not a lot going on. It's a real simple beat. You can slide it back, catch it from the kick, boom, 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 ba-bat, boom, 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 ba-bat, boom, boom, you know. So I started catching the basics there. So that's where how I just started DJing, just in that way. It wasn't really nothing like, I want to be like Grandmaster Flash. It wasn't like that. It was just with some friends and people who knew how to do it. And um, and then and then from there, it's just times of being friends, going to his house, we we would do, you know, there was always that moment, let's go in the room and cut it up a little bit. And in time, I just started getting a little better at it and understanding the philosophy behind DJing. Um, and then in, in life, the concept of that just kept happening to me. I just started running, um, meeting people who were into it. And then I just, I got a friend over here. Let's go to my house. Let's cut it up. I meet this guy. Let's cut it up. So that's what got me into that portion of it. Now in Hamden High, I ended up going to Hamden High for high school. So in Hamden High, this dude was from the Bronx. He just lived, he moved from Connecticut or from the Bronx to Connecticut. So he's in my early morning class. But every morning it was illegal for us to have a Walkman in class, but he was just like, have it tucked in, have one, just, you know, one on his ear. And he'd just be listening to it like, yo. So I never knew what he was listening to. So one day he would just go, yo, listen to this. So Because we sat next to each other like this. he go, check this out. And I'll just listen to it. And then you can hear like the live shows from New York back then. Because that's how it started spreading through these tapes. So when they would do park jams or live shows in a you know, hall. Because back then, hip hop wasn't in bars and clubs, right? So you had to be a park jam or a school gym, you know, church, VFW, Elks Club, something like that. So he'll let me hear that. So I'm like, what is that tape? So at one point when the teacher walked out the room, he gave me the Walkman. So I'm, I had both headphones and I'm listening to it. I'm like, what is this? So what it was, was he had these tapes from a radio station. It was a college radio station. I, I think it was out of Jersey or downtown New York, like downtown. And it was called WHBI. So now this gives me a whole new outlook on what hip hop radio sounds like, right? Um, so now I'm, I'm hearing these different things. So I, I was like, you know, can I hold one of those tapes? So one day he said, I'm going to bring you a tape. So he let me hold the tape. All right. So now backing up some, this is ninth grade, right? I'm in high school. I just want to back up to the eighth grade a little bit. One more thing. Because remember I was saying the things that I had first was my Fisher Price, right, record player. Then I had that little box. So one day me and my mother was in Macy's and I seen this little slim box with two tape decks. I was like, man, I want that. And lo and behold, she actually bought it for me. I don't think she bought it at that time, but she went back. I think maybe it was close to Christmas. But I was like, I, it had two tape decks. I was amazed. Like, two tape decks? You know, plus my other one was already beat down. So I needed a new one. So, you know, she got that for me. So now I got my, I got a picture of me with that box too, right? So that's the third thing that brings me, keeps music within me. So I got my box. So when he hands me this tape, I can, now when I say that to say when I, he hands me this tape, I have something to play it in. 
right? So I'm listening, got my headphones on, and I'm listening to this tape. So I'm like, WHPI, okay. And I'm just seeing how the format of hip-hop radio actually went, not like what you hear on these stations today. It's a totally different format, especially because back then, there was not a lot of rec records to play. Sugar Hill Gang, Curtis Blow, and then a lot of it was tapes from live shows. So if you weren't old enough to be there or you're not living in New York, you're still able to hear it as it started to spread. All right, so that's that phase of it. So now I'm hearing how hip hop sounds like it on, on radio or potentially in a in a party, like at a jam. But I'm still young. I'm really just coming off the porch now. I'm, I'm like 13 years old. So I'm really just now starting to get out. So now breakdancing is a thing. Circa 1983. So now these other guys that I'm with in high school with, one guy's in my class, he was like, you have a breakdance? It's like, I heard of breakdance and I did, but I've never really tried it. So what is it like? So then he, he said, you got to get on the floor and do this. So he got on the floor. We was in study hall. So he got on the floor and he started breaking on the rug. And you can't really get down on the rug, right? But he just tried to show me what it was like. So then I went over to this other guy named Bob's house who had a tape, a VHS tape. I forgot what it was. I don't know if it was Style Wars, but he had a VHS tape where dudes was getting down. So I'm like, ah, because this is before B Street, right? So I'm like, ah. So that's, I actually jumped into that. So I'm doing that seriously, breakdancing. So that was really my first thing. But running concurrently with that, as we're going through high school, running concurrently with that was me having friends. Like this one dude came from Pittsburgh. His name was T. Moe, the master of wax. So as we met him, he was a new guy in school. And then next, you know, as people met him, somebody told me, you know that new guy? His name was Ron. But he's like, you know that new guy, Ron? He DJs. Well, he does. So me and this dude named Bob, went over his house. So he was another one. I had another friend that I went to grammar school with. Um, he Rest in peace. His name was Milton Lloyd. Uh, his, his name was DJ Milkshake. So back in the days of the 90s in New Haven, he would DJ at um, Dimery's. I don't know if anybody out there remember Dimery's if they know Connecticut like that, down t um, towards Yale. It, was used to, it used to be next to Toe's Place, and then it moved downtown Right, I think it used to be Hula. Hula Hanks, I think, was there now, if you're familiar with downtown New Haven. But there was Hula Hanks. But before all those other places, it was Demery's. So DJ Milkshake would um, DJ there. And so that's around, I think, the eighth grade or ninth grade, I would actually go to Milk's house to also the same thing, to DJ. So I just happened to have a lot of people. So it was only just a hobby for me with friends. I've never had the, the thought of like, Let's go rent a hall. Let's see what it's like. Or if that dude's doing it, I'm going to try to go there and see if he'll let me get on a set. I never did it like that. It was just always in the house around friends. It was just, to me, it was a hobby, something to do. I never seen myself going that far with it. And it just didn't strike me as much because, you know, you really have to love it. The thing I didn't like about it is that you're at a party where everybody having fun. You're part of the fun because you're playing the music, but you're restricted to that area. You always had, the DJs will always tell you, especially back then, they always had to have that one song, like if it's the extended version of the Sugar Hill Gang or whatever it is, play that 12 inch. If that's 12 minutes long, play that because that gave you as a DJ time to go to the bathroom, maybe chat with somebody. Hey, so how you been? And then get back to your business. So that was the time of me, um, the culture of hip hop coming into play. So now I'm breakdancing. I'm part of a breakdancing crew, and we're doing we're doing a lot of different things, going to different clubs. 
and breakdancing active jams. I kind of liked that more because you were still free. You wasn't restricted. And then you start, we will just get on the floor and start doing our thing. And then people just make a circle around us and watch us. So that was that. Then, you know, what was that? How would you learn that just by watching other people, instinct? I mean, you, you probably not many tapes or examples of that around or were there well now there is but oh right that makes sense. Yeah, yeah now if you want to learn now you could there's so much stuff out there now the but guys, back then i'm saying was there much no no it yeah, wasn't it much yeah. you you just had to see what other break dancers did so people who did have it you start going to those areas um that that people were the break dancing right. and um you start going and you just start seeing other people's moves and back then it was just worried when you copy somebody you're biting their style Right, so biting was a word, so that's what you would do. You would bite his style. Like a lot of people, when it comes to Crazy Lakes from Rocksteady Crew, a lot of people bit his style because he was the one from Flashdance, from um, Wild Style. That movie dropped in 1982, and I didn't see it back then. It wasn't until like maybe 83, 84 when it went to VHS tape. So back then, we're talking 80s now, that... V VCRs are the thing. Right. So I'm in, I don't know, one of these, uh, you know, rental places, and there it is. Wow, style. Wow. <gasps> I want this. So I watched that, and that really just set the tone for me because now I started to see and understand how these guys looked and dressed. Um, fashion was a, a part of it, too, where people that I knew, for me growing up, fashion wasn't a big deal because I went to parochial school. So it wasn't until the eighth grade when I went to uh, public school. I left parochial Catholic school and went to public school. Friends used to tell me, you go school shopping yet? You go school shopping? Like I waited till the night before my mother was like, you wanna go school shopping? I was like, all right, come on. She took me to different places. I just bought certain things. I didn't really care because I never had to. When you go to Catholic school, you know that you go to school, you take off your gray pants and your stuff. Then you put on your, what they call play clothes. Then back then we would go out there and play Nerf football, touch football, tackle football in the grass you know, fast pitch tennis ball where you draw a square on the, you know, a wall of some place and fast pitch tennis ball. So after school, I just, we just played in the dirt. We just played hide and go seek, whatever it was. So I'm at the bus stop and one of the friends is Alan. He comes walking by, walking down to the bus stop and, you know, we're waiting for the school bus and he just, his, the way he, his fashion was, he had his Adidas on with the fat laces in them, matching everything he wore. So, I was like, oh, okay. And then when I got to school, the guy, Derek, that I had met during the summer, when I was telling you the second one that I started seeing DJing, Derek Thorne, DJ Derek T, he was the same way. Now, I knew some of it because some of the dudes, when I went outside to play, there was some dudes who would come from wherever. If they had detention, they still coming home from school, they would be fresh like that. But I didn't still care. Like, you know, um, so I knew some of it, but I know it was serious in school. So when I get to school, I see how Alan is at the bus. I'm like, yo, he look, it looks good. I like that, how it matches and the sweater matches the shoestrings. And then he comes back the next day. It's the same thing. I go to school, Derek Thorne doing the same thing. Oh, okay, I get it. So this is the era of all the the games, like the Christmas before. I think I had every, remember the handheld? We, I don't know how old you are, but remember the, there was these handheld electronic games that we would play, right? So that's when I was like 12 years old. So now I'm in high school, so now I tell my mother, I don't want no toys. I don't want anything for Christmas. I just want money. Whatever you can give, I'll take it. So she gave me like $500, and then that's when around that time, that's when I learned 
myself and some friends, and they were like, my friend Alan called me, he was like, you wanna, you wanna go um, to New York? And I was like, yeah. He said, we're gonna go shopping. I was like, cool, because I got $500, because that's what she gave me. So I had 500, this is early 80s, so that was kind of a lot, a of, lot money. of money. Yeah. yeah, things didn't co cost a lot back then. So like, we went to New York and I was able to get all my clothes. So it was funny, because now I'm into the fashion now. So now, you know, you start to see, then you start to go to basketball games, like Hamden playing Hill House and playing Cross, and then you start to see how these guys are doing it, like, oh. So this is a part of hip hop I gotta now gravitate to. Fashion is definitely a part of it. So I just got into the fashion part of it then, right? So now you got, that's how I got into the fashion. Um, you know, the name belt buckles and all that stuff like that, the different bomber jackets, sheepskins, carnikins, mock necks, Britishers, wallabies, all Lee Twills, Strattler jackets, like all those things like that. So now I got the fashion going hobby type of DJ, but a serious break dancer, B-boy. So that's where I'm at, 1983, 84, same thing. 85, same thing. Now, around, 80, okay, 80, 84, 85-ish, I'm going out more. So now I'm going to these places, you know, this one guy coming up in New Haven, Connecticut, his name was um, Cutmaster. He was from the Bronx, too, but he moved to New Haven. And his name was uh, Cutmaster DJ Joey D. And you will go, you'll see flyers. One time I'm coming out of this barbershop and somebody handed it a flyer and it said, Cutmaster Joey D in Superior Zam. So I called my friend. I'm like, let's go to this. Because now I'm starting to go out and really be amongst this type of hip-hop party now. So we go to the Elks Club in New Haven on Dixwell Avenue. We go in there. And, you know, just seeing the DJs get down and just seeing how people are dressing the fashion and um, friends that I know from the crew, they're coming in like, yo, why don't y'all tell me y'all been, you guys come to stuff like this. Like now we getting down, we break dancing and we doing all kinds of stuff. So then that was my thing, like going to these clubs and break dancing or these gyms and these jams, break dancing, park jams during the summer. Um, so we've got the fashion. I'm seriously a b-boy break dancing and, and you know i'm a hobbyist with the turntables depending on who i'm around now break dancing starts to fade it was circa 1986 though, though i think break dancing was fading period right and it just for me and i had like my man bob bob white he was his break dancing name was silky smooth my break dancing name was kiss with and then um uh this dude rest in peace kenny gauze his break dancing name was kid twist so Bob White and Kenny Gauze was able to, they was down with like this other breakdancing crew that they got a job with. So this guy named Dave, he was good at getting them shows. So they would go off and literally do shows. If it was at Riverside Park up in Mass or wherever, like wherever they, they would just do shows. But I never really went. They never invited me. So I never really went. So they kept going on with it. I stopped. So I'm still just dressing fly. That was it for me at that point. So then... Bob goes later on, he because he raps too. So Bob goes later on, he's like, yo, sometimes in high school when we were at the lunch table, you, depending on who's at the lunch table, somebody might do a beat on the lunch table. You know, these are the tables that still had the seats connected. I don't know how they look nowadays, but there was the tables that fold up, you fold them down. And they, I had those here. Yeah, so, you know, you sit there, but they make a very good percussion sound. So you ball your fist up with one hand, you got your hand open, and you got your bass and your snare. You got your kick and your snare. So a dude would do that, and then people would start rapping. So now I'm hearing Bob rap. I'm hearing this guy named um, um, Henry Jackson, King Henry V. That was his rap name. Um, 
he's rapping too. So everybody's starting to kind of move away from the breakdancing into the rapping. So King Henry V and Bob, I forgot what his rap name was at the time, but they started to be like a group. So Bob comes to me and goes, start rapping, start rapping. And I go, man, nah, nah. Where are we going to go with it? I already did breakdancing. It's not going to take us anywhere. Like, I don't worry about what I'm going to do after high school. right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, it's just funny. So one day I'm at home. I'm going, you know what? Let me sit down and try this. He wants me to rap. And it was this other dude. that There's a lot of rest in pieces here. But this guy, uh, Larry Larry Love was his name, Larry Young. Um, when they was playing the beat at the table, because Larry will mostly be the one playing the beat. And everybody else will rap. And this other guy, Kenyatta. And, um... I think his his rap name was Mr. X. Um, so when when Larry started rapping, I was like, I know Larry was rapping. He was doing pretty good because he was playing the beat and he was rapping. So they would take turns. And when he started rapping, I'm like, oh, for real? Larry raps too? So when I went home that night, I said, let me give this a try. So that's when I went home and I sat down and I wrote my first rhyme. So then I said, now I got to let Bob hear this because I don't know. I don't have my confidence like that. So I got to let Bob hear this. So one day me and Bob was walking and I said it to him. So you're the one that got me like trying to rap. So I said, him, I said my rhyme to him and he didn't say anything. He just shut up and he never asked me to rap again. So I was like, in my mind, I'm like, I guess I wasn't good. I, I guess I don't got it because he didn't say anything. And he never, he never did. It's funny because it was like a couple of years ago we spoke on that. And he was telling me, he was like, because I thought you was coming at me. I said I wasn't coming at you. I was trying to impress you. I'm trying to let you told me to rap. I'm trying to like, how do I, how do I, you know, how was I? Was I any good? I wasn't going at you. I don't know nothing about battling people or nothing like that. I'm just trying to write my first rap. So that first rap is funny because I still remember it. It wasn't long, but it was like, it went like I said, I took a little bit from Kumo D because Kumo D back then, people know him from uh, his songs earlier in his battles with L Cool J like the Wild Wild West and all that stuff he did. But before that, he was with a group called Treacherous Three. So he was the one that kind of elevated the lyrical skills of rappers, especially going into the 80s. You know, Busy B was more simplistic. Have you heard of Busy B? Mm -hmm. He was more, you know, say ho, blah, 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 but dang and dang. Like, stuff like that where, where, where Kumo D like, had an intelligence using big words. So I took a little bit of his style. So my first rhyme, it wasn't long, but it was more like innovator. My rhymes are greater than the ones you heard. They're quite absurd because in my voice you hear, but fear. Make sucker MCs jump and turn queer. I'm an innovator who rhymes are greater. And when I leave, I say, I'll see you later. I got an artistic, artistic style that makes you want to smile. My rhymes are poetic. They make you energetic. This rhyme is deaf. Why? Because I said it was. Sucker MCs, just leave me alone because I am the king of the microphone. And Bob didn't say nothing after that. Wow. <laughs> I was like, and in my head, I'm like, was that any good? Was I good? I guess I wasn't good. He didn't say anything. So I just dropped it. The pin and everything. The mic dropped. Pop. All right. So that I wasn't good. Because I, I looked up to him because he was good. He was already doing it. So his confidence and his skill level was there. And um, so we ride this out. Until 86, 87, that's when I graduated high school. Right? Now, we're... So there's not a lot of break dancing, but there's like hip-hop dances. Like the hip, there's a lot of hip-hop dancers back then, right? 
So this is where Steezel goes. He because Steezel was also breakdancing, right? So Steezel leaves breakdancing and now he's doing like those hip hop dancers. So when you look at some of the groups in the 80s, they always got these dancers behind them dancing. But that's like a, a thing of its own, right? So Steezel got into that as well. So now EPMD is a group who was on Sleeping Bag Records, fresh Sleeping Bag Records out of New York. They dropped their first single. They come to New Haven with their dancers and do a show. And Paris Smith, which is the PMD of EPMD, actually went to Southern. So he was familiar with New Haven. Uh, so they came to New Haven to do a show and they had their dancers. So when their dancers was on a dance floor, like just before the actual performance, they were dancing on the dance floor. So Steezer went out there and was doing his thing. So I guess Paris liked the way Steezer was doing his thing. So Parrish goes to him later and go, yo, you want to come on tour with us? So now Steezo's into the, those moves right there, right? He, he's going on tour with EPMD. He's dancing. Him, this dude named Fendi, was also one of their dancers. And um, Steezo ends up in the EPMD's You Gots the Chill video. In that video, he's wearing this yellow baggy outfit. And he does this dance where it's like a hop step dance, right? For some reason, that dance sticks. He also had a dance that he made up called the Steve Martin. He didn't make it up, but he kind of took it from some things when uh, Steve Martin did a movie called The Jerk. And he was living with this black family and they were on the porch in the country singing and dancing and Steve Martin was doing his dance. So Steezel took that dance from him and called it the Steve Martin, right? Just like there was another dance called the Pee Wee Herman where they took Pee Wee Herman's dance. So they did an EPMD on their first Strictly Business album actually does a song like that. So now, Steezo is with EPMD. They're doing their thing. If you look at the first album cover, he's on the back. Now something happens to where now Steezo's no longer on tour with EPMD. He comes home. Being from New Haven, we all kind of got the same circle of friends, depending on who you're around. So, you know, I'm hanging with this one guy named LG56. That's what we call him. His name is Lamont. We call him LG56. So we all outside on Shelton Avenue in the New Hallville section of New Haven. And, you know, L goes to me, he goes, yo, Jim, yo, Steve, Steve, Steve's on his way. Right. I was like, OK, that was cool. Cause I ain't because I when anytime he came home to New Haven, I wouldn't see him. And we did know each other prior before that. Right. Through the breakdancing. That's when I met actually met Steezo. Because all the breakdancers in New Haven knew each other. So. So then he gets kicked off the tour, which that's another story on his end. So I come into play with that where um, Steezo, we're, we're out there and there's a lot of illegal action going on. So Steezo comes to me and go, yo, are you out here working? I'm like, nah, I ain't out here. I'm just hanging out. So he's like, yeah, okay, well, you know, let's get out of here, man. If something happens around here, go down. We don't want to be around for that. We're not making no money out here. All right, where you want to go? I don't know. Let's just drive. So we jump in my Cherokee and we drive off. So we halfway down the street. And so I'm going, yo, so what's up, man? You know, what's, what, what's going on? What happened? What's, going, what, what's up with EPMD? And then he, he starts telling me the story. He was like, yeah, they had to, they had to, they sent me home, blah, 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 for certain things that um, they sent them home for. So I was like, all right, so why don't you try to make a record? He said, I did. 
Um, but they didn't they didn't accept it. So Steezo, um, Dulio, and one of one of their other friends, I guess. Now, before that, I don't know if I'm going into another story, but Dooley is doing these songs. Through LG fifty six, I meet Dooley. I go over to Dooley's house one day, he lets me hear a song. Call it's called Talking Sense. With the uh, I think it was the average white band song. So Dooley lets me hear that. He's the only one rapping. So a week later, I come back and I thought it was good. I'm like, oh, that was good, Dooley. I didn't know another time. I, I, times I was around him, I didn't know you was into rapping and stuff, right? Because he just let me hear it. So I didn't know you did that. He was like, yeah. Okay. So um, I don't know if I went too far, but I do want to back up one more second. Well, was Steezo, like, was that a big deal that he was in kind of EM, EPMD? EPMD's kind of... Entourage type Yeah, of exactly. Yeah. That's still early. That's mid eight. Well, that's going into the late eighties hip hop. So that was, was anyone like, why not me? Why why Steezo? Or it was it was, you know. No, not really, because they un, people understood like I can't speak for everybody in New Haven, but the the circle of friends that we had, we understood how he got there. He was just a person that was, you know, like say if you just like sawing trees down and someone who's got a company like that seen you sawing a tree and was like, Hey, I could use you over here. So, I mean, it wasn't like he beat anybody out for it where it's a competition and we're mad because you got the job and we didn't. They just ch chose him, seeing him do his thing on the dance floor. So, um, but backing up just a little bit as far as my musical experience, I just want to touch on that. I gave you how music was around from the turntables to the box to my two tape cassettes. Also within that, one of my uncle's, my father's brothers who was in the band Rearview had a Dr. Rhythm drum machine. So he let me hold that. So that's another entity of the music of learning how to tap drums and programming it to play the beat, adding the snare and the high haxes. And so I had that under my belt. I had, you know, how to loop something. I had that under my belt. And then um, I understood the DJ's part of it and the rapping part of it. Uh, another part to that, I had a couple of tapes from WHBI, right? There was this one part where DJ Red Alert plays this breakbeat, but he didn't let it play out, but it was so hot to me. So now we're at this gym playing basketball, and my friend Bob, again, he has his box. That's another thing. I did grow to a bigger box, right? So I did that. My box was big. It had the, I had the one with the alarm on it. How many batteries did it take? <laughs> uh, that one, I think, was eight. It was either Ooh. eight to ten. Yep. It was eight to ten batteries. I think it was eight, four on the bottom and four on top, if I'm not mistaken. So that's why I didn't take it out a lot because it would chew up your battery. So, so I, I had that element of the music, right? I didn't know anything about a studio, so I just wanted to throw that in there, right? So now with with Steezo, he's telling me his story. Um, I go back to Dooley's house. Before me and Steezo got up, I go back to Dooley's house and he's telling me, yo, Steezo was in town, so I missed him again. So now he's letting me hear the same song, but it's him and Steezo rapping. It's like, oh, that's even better. That's cool. Like, I liked it. Like, you guys are rapping. And I say that to say this because it makes sense in the part of the story where Dooley didn't tell me everything. So when I'm with Steezo, I'm like, what, what happened? Like, how come you don't try to do your own thing? He said, well, I did with Dooley. We took this music to the to the uh, Fresh Records, Sleeping Bag Records, but they didn't want us, blah, blah, blah. So this is why I had to bring back that other, how Dooley was on it. So that's why him and Dooley did it. 
And I, I, I wasn't around, so I don't know why Sleeping Bag didn't want it. They didn't deal with it. So I had a little money then, right? So I go, well, why don't you do your own thing? And he was like, I, I, I would, but I don't have no money for the studio. So I was like, well, you know, I asked him a few questions first. Like, all right, say if you've got a record deal and you made a music video, can I be in it? Yeah, you can be in it. Okay, say if you got a record deal and you did a show that was like, say at least close by, like in Philly or Jersey or New York, can I go? Of course you can go. Okay, say if you did the back of an album cover like Eric B and Rakim did where they had their friends on the back of the album cover, can I be on the back of the album cover? Man, you stupid, of course you can be on the album cover. So I was just like, all right, find a studio, I'll pay for your demo tape. So this is how it comes in. So I don't know where I play a part. So I did ask him. I was like, yo, do you need a DJ? I'll DJ. Right? And he was like, you DJ? See, he only knew me for breakdancing. He didn't know, you know about, the, uh, about the DJing part. But mind you also, I'd never been in a studio before. So I don't know how any of this stuff works. You know, I don't know. You could take two turns. I don't know how to produce music. I don't. I have the drum machine, but I don't know how that equates to going into a studio. Right, so everything I do is in the house. Stepping back a little bit again, I'm sorry. I, I, when I was saying Red Alert had that break beat and Bob had his box, right? Bob, we were playing basketball and Bob, I let him hold the tape. He dubbed the tape and he was playing that same tape. So I, while I'm playing in the basketball game, I'm, we're all listening to the music. I know how the tapes go, how the tape goes. So when it gets to that part of the beat, break beat, his is continuously, continuously going. I'm going, how did he do that? Like, it's not like that on the regular tape. So after the basketball game, I go to him, I go, yo, how did you, why is your version like that beat? Oh, he said, pause mixed it. Pause mix. So he said, yeah, you got it. And he showed me. So one day I went over his house and he, I said, and he showed me, I said, let me show you how to pause mix. So that's how I learned how to like, you know, you play the tape, stop it, rewind it. When that part comes up, you hit the record button and extend it out. So now not realizing how that plays in sort of like when you're DJing. Ah, now when I'm doing it, it's the same concept of when you're DJing and how you just loop those four bars. Okay, so I just had to throw that out there where I am musically not equating it to the studio at this time. So Steezo calls me the same night like, yo, I found a studio out in um, Wallingford, Connecticut called Tri-Nozzle. So that's where we go. And we go out there the first night, we're in the MIDI room and I'm watching him put this stuff together. Now, I don't know what to do, right? So I'm watching it being done now. Class is in session for me. But at the same time when he's doing it, he's taking it off a of tape. So he's taking the same songs that him and Dooley did, but he's taking it off a of tape. So now I'm feeling crazy about it because I'm like, well, aren't you still in Dooley's songs? Because I heard Dooley on this stuff first. So, but I don't say nothing to him, but this is what's going on in my mind. And sure enough, who go, opens the door to the, the first night we go there, we, we just do the music, the MIDI room. Second night we go there again. Now we're in the big part because we're gonna the music's done. We're gonna put the vocals down. So while the beat is playing, because remember you gotta record it real time, the song length. So while it's recording the song length and the beat is playing, we're just kind of sitting there. And sure enough, Dooley opens up the door. He looks at me, speaks to me, and don't say nothing to Steezo. So I'm like, oh, something's popping now. Something's going on, but I don't say nothing. So anyway, we go do our thing. So now we got the demo tape done. Like I said, Steezo didn't believe I can DJ. Now at this time you got, who was hot? Like DJ Cash Money, you, uh, Jazzy Jeff, the, the Transformer, like 
let me back off of that. Because first I was like, yo, I can DJ, I can DJ. But then in my mind as we're driving, I'm going, DJ Jazzy Jeff, DJ Cash Money, Transformer Scratches. Like, I better not put myself out there like that. So I leave it alone. I said, well, y'all, this dude that I know named DJ Splash, you know, he DJs, he's nice. I'll get him the DJ, you know, and we all just move. I don't know where I play a part in this now. Maybe I'm being a, the manager or some. I don't really know at this point, but I'm just starting to orchestrate the people. Okay, you get with this. You come with us. We're going to do this and do that. So I'm orchestrating it. I even changed it. Like, you have to be either Steezo Weezo, Steezo E, or Steezo. I'm just going to be Steezo. All right, well, that's the packaging right now because you already got that from the EPMD album. So people are familiar with that name. So we got the packaging right, we go deliver it. So now we're at Sleeping Bag Records. I'm there, me, him, and DJ Splash. And I get pulled in even deeper because now people got to understand that record labels have, you have an idea what you want to do, but so do record labels if you go to them for help, right? Part of you getting a deal is part of them having their own vision and you're a part of their vision. So they sign you to do their vision. So by me being there at the time, and it's funny because I'm looking up with the way Slipping Bag was laid out. They had all the album covers because they was like hip hop and freestyle music. Right. So they had all the album covers of this stuff on the walls. That's what the walls are decorated with. So I'm looking at and guess who's there? DJ Cash Money and Marvelous. Right. So I'm looking at, well, DJ Cash Money. OK, let me back up a little bit for the demo tape. There's one part where. The, the previously the songs they did they had samples where Steezo or Dooley would say um so and so was on the cut cut so let's start it it's time to yeah they would say like whoever was the DJ dude at the time DJ so and so's on the cut 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 so let's start it it's time to get retarded so when it got to that so and so was on the cut cut during the studio time I don't see myself as a DJ. But Steezo plugs my name in there. He calls me Jimmy Slice. I don't even have a, my name was just regular DJ Jimmy D. So he goes, DJ, uh, he goes, Jimmy Slice is on the cut, cut. So now I'm plugged in on the demo tape. So this is where it happened. Where did the slice come from? He named me that, right? Because I I was thinking about a name. Now, there was another time way before that where, where we hung out, right? There was a club called Breakaway out in Orange, Connecticut. Uh, do you remember Nick and Nils at all? Do you remember any of those clubs? All right, so this is... All right, but this is like the, the 80s. It was a club called Breakaway. So me, him, and my cousin went out there, hung out. We went home. We dropped him off. He said goodbye to everybody, me and him in the back seat. He says goodbye to everybody. When he, when he says goodbye to me, he's like, all right, Jimmy Slice. I was like, Jimmy Slice. That's the first time I heard it and the last time I heard it. So then when we hooked up and the music stuff happening, he was like, you think of a DJ name yet? I was like, not yet. I can't. I don't know if I just want to be regular DJ Jimmy D, you know, the initial of my last name. But I couldn't could think of, like, something creative. So it was like, just be DJ Jimmy Slice. All right, well, that's on the burner, just in case. So when it, it got to the point where I couldn't think of anything, so I just kind of adopted that. And plus, again, when he did the demo tape, when it came to that part of it, he said, uh, Jimmy Slice is on the cut, cut, cut. So let's start. It's time to, and the sample went, uh, Roxy and Shantae, get retarded, because they had sampled it, right? So now my name is on the demo tape. But I'm not, I'm thinking, well, he just had to put filler there. Like, he's just using me, but I'm probably not really the DJ. I don't know. I didn't really take it seriously. I wasn't sure how he felt 
Were you just being nice? Do you really want me to be a DJ? I didn't really know where to go with that. You know, I'm just in my head. I'm like, you're just adding the filler. You're probably just using me for the time being. You know what I mean? Which I get. Somebody's name got to be put there. All right. So we got the demo tape. Finally, we got it going. I put up the money for everything. And and I didn't like as long as I was able to be around, that was fine with me. You know what I mean? I never I don't know nothing about the music business, but it seems fun. Right. So as long as I was able to be around, I was fine with that. So we go to the demo um, we go to the record label sleeping bag fresh records on broadway and we're in there and i'm looking up at the wall like i said it was decorated with all album covers of different people's albums uh back then they had uh dj cash money and marvelous they had uh tila rock they had just ice um nice and smooth wasn't there yet okay um, they they had Joy Sims, rest in peace, Joy Sims. She just passed away. Um, Mikey D, Mikey Destruction. They had him there, and EPMD, of course. So I'm looking up at the wall, and I'm going, DJ Cash Money. I said, if if I was the DJ, I won't be the only light skinned DJ with green eyes on the record label, because DJ Cash Money is the same. Then as I'm looking down further, I'm going down, 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 looking at the covers, and boom, there's DJ, uh, there's Mikey Destruction from Queens. I think his group was Mikey Destruction and L.A. Posse. And um, he, same thing, like he's a rapper, and he's also light-skinned with green eyes. It's like either way I go, I'm not going to be the only where I was rapping. you know. And also a part of that, too, speaking of rapping, is that I did tell Steve, oh, I said, I know how to rap. He said, you rap, too? I was like, yeah, but then I left that alone because of what I went through with Bob, and I said, I can't. Because now you got Coogee Rap is out, Karis One is out, Rock Him is out. I'm not those three, so let me not even step in that water either. So I was just quiet. So anyway, when we're at the record label, Steezel's talking to the guy. They go in the back. You can hear the music playing in the back, right? So now, later on, we get the deal. But I guess they had an idea. So they take the guy, DJ Splash, right? And they'd say he can't be in it. And I couldn't understand that. Like, Public Enemy has all these people. And Run DMC is three people. And Salt and Pepper are three people. And Stetson Sonic has, like, they're a band. They're, the, like, the first hip-hop before the Roots type stuff, right? So I'm like, why can't we have three people? I don't get it. I couldn't understand why it was so hard for us to have three people. But this is what people don't realize. Sometimes you want your record deal. You know who you are, but also the record company has their, their thing that they want to do with you and how they want to market you. Sometimes they want to copy, right? So before us, 87, I think it was around 87, there was a group called, or 88, there was a group called Super Lover C and Casanova Rudd. Two light-skinned guys, one got light eyes, they both got high top fades. So when me and Steezo took our first promotional pictures together to get that part started, Steezo calls me up that night and he goes, yo, we can't do this. Right? So what do you mean we can't do it? He said, you really look at that picture? Because we both had a copy of it. So like, look at that picture. What, what do you see? I'm, in, my, I'm, in my eyes, I'm just seeing us, right? I see me and you taking the picture. He was like, nah, really look at it. Don't we look like Super Lover C and Casanova Rudd? And once he opened my eyes up to that, because I'm not really thinking like a label. You know, it's my freshman year. So 
This is his sophomore year because he was already with EPMD, so he went around the loop already. So when I looked at it and he said that, it just seems like it, yep. So we can't do that. Like he said, we try to do that. We're never going to be, we're always going to be looking at the secondary. And I think that's what hurt DJ Cash Money and Marvelous because they was like a second handoff of uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince wearing the little turtlenecks and just that clean cut look. And they were kind of the same way. So I was like, they they remind me of, and they were both from Philly. So I was like, you're right, we can't do that. So then we had to go get a third person to offset that. And uh, then, then the rest is kind of history from there, you know, as far as us getting on and, and going further. Uh, we we did a lot, and there's a lot we didn't do. We traveled a lot of places. I mean, like, when we first started going on the road, it's funny because you would think, like, as a I was 20 years old. Yeah, I was 19 when I got started, but then my birthday came up. This is 88. So we started the summer of 88. And then my birthday comes, my birthday's in November. So then I turn 20 in November. Right. And I think I forgot where I was going with this. Um, well, when you're on the road and okay. you guys are on tour, mm -hmm. so what, what is your role within Steezo? Oh, I, I became the DJ. Right. So I did become the DJ at that point. Um, even we did get the third person to offset it, but he was also a DJ. So it was like like when we went to London, the other dude was still in high school. His mother was like, you ain't going nowhere till you finish high school. So you would think like when Sleeping Bag said, OK, you guys going to go start doing some promotional shows and, and touring some places. So you guys got to go get your. Um, your passport, passport for what? So you can go over to London. We're not going to London. We got to get it popping here in the U.S. first. <laughs> then we go to London. But see, what we never knew is that we're thinking the record ain't out yet, but we didn't know they was already doing their thing in London. So we, like, as 20 years old, you would think it'd be happy, right? No, we was like, nah, man, nah. Not London. We're going to do the States first. And once it's lit over here, then we go to London. That's how it works. We can't go to, people don't know us in London. But sure enough, we got there and we, we had to do a record, um, thing signing at a record store and greet meet people it wasn't a lot of people there so that's the first thing we did so it was kind of disheartening right so it was like they don't we're right like why are we here they don't know us here so kind of upset for being in london like we're gonna be getting played the whole time so after that long flight we get to the hotel room like i said and we go to do the in store with the signings and everything we that was another thing. Like the night before we did the in-store, they came in. These guys came with hand trucks, like four hand trucks full of records. And like sometimes people think it's like all glorious when you're making records because they watch the music videos. They don't, Some people don't understand it work that. It could be boring and tedious, right? So we have to sit there with a Sharpie and all these 12-inch covers and stay sweet from Jim Slice. Stay sweet. Like if, you, if a girl gets this one, be, stay cool like if a guy get this one so for as a girl stay sweet Jim Slice if a guy yo be cool Jim Slice Steezo doing the same thing so um, it was weird about that is somebody on Facebook so about 10 years ago when Facebook really started popping off somebody shared with me a 12 inch I guess they were from London because that's the only time I did it 
and they had a 12 inch with my name on it. It said that I autographed. I was like, wow, like you really got one of those. I don't know which one it was because we had mad records. It was boring for us to just sit there, take out, what is it, like 50 records a stack per box? And you take out 50, you sign them, put them in. You, know you weren't I mean? were meeting people? In London? Yeah. Not yet. Not yet. Because the promoters will do their job to take you where you need to be. And then they, once they're done with you, they drop you off at the hotel and you're on your own. So as we got there, one of, they took us out to Blackpool, England, which was like a Woodstock. But instead of staying in tents, you stayed in like these little campers. And it was a lot of them, too. It was kind of cool. Right, it was like a Woodstock. So we stayed out there for a night, and then we did a show someplace else. Like when we got there, they took us to the outskirts, different parts of London, like or England, and we're just doing different things. So, and and a lot of the things that we're doing is like predominantly white things that we were doing. So for us, it was like, well, they're not gonna know our music. You know what I mean? Because we, because back then, you know, hip hop or rap was you felt it wasn't out there like that unless you were Run DMC with the King of Rock song, you know, or it's like that and that's the way it is. But no one's gonna know us. So why are we all? We're promoting our music. We're doing what we're supposed to do, but we couldn't understand because places like in where we were, it was a predominantly like white crowd. So we just felt like we weren't reaching people. We felt they didn't understand us. So we just kind of felt like blah the time we were there but we're just going through the routines like hey we're in london or in england let's make the best of it then we did this one show finally in in london now now we're they bring us back to london and we're back in our hotel room where we first got to you know most of our clothes was there we're back in the hotel room and we do this show at this club called Dingwalls, which was like a shack you know, we we did radio. We met Tim Westwood. We was up on the radio there too. Tim Westwood was like a DJ, Red Alert, a big time DJ in London. He, to this day, he's probably still the same dude. Um, so we we do the show in Dingwalls with Ultra Magnetic, and it was funny because we pull up in front of the place that you had to go down down this dark alley to get to the place. So we pull up in the cab at the place and some guy comes running out of the alley like it's a dark alley but you see a lot of people back there and some guy comes running out holding his face like somebody must have bashed him in the face with a stick or something his nose is bleeding I don't know if he got punched but I'm going oh crap I don't know if we want to be here I felt I was like we don't want to go there so we had lady promoter with us she was like come on guys we're just gonna go so I'm like oh boy here we go let me just start getting keep my fist just in case so we got and everything was cool. We was like, we was at the door like, yo, it's us, it's Steezo, you know, Jim Slide, blah, blah, blah. And like, all right, come on in. We had to fight through people. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Because they was just, everybody, people, a lot of people trying to get in. And it was hot in there, too. It was a sauna in there. Um, but when we started rocking and started doing our thing, the place went crazy. And I was just shocked because I was like, well, for us? Like, seriously? But that's how much they were already familiar with us. Then we knew. It's just that when we first got there, they took us so to these outskirts that we never felt the aura, the essence of hip hop at these parties. You know, it's, it's you know, so it was like, well, these aren't really hip hop people. Maybe some may know, some may not. I don't, so, you know, so yeah, that was our first going out on tour was in London, going places. And then we did our shows. And then from there, other people started coming across to London. We were there for like at least three weeks, hanging out. And sometimes we had to beg for money, call the label. Like, can we get some money today? Like, because we couldn't get in there. We didn't know. They were like, you're here for work. We're like, yeah, yeah, we're making records. We're going to get paid. You know? <laughs> Can't tell them that at the airport. We didn't know that. 
Now it's like, all right, well, you guys got working papers? Wait, what do you mean working papers? No, come on, step to the side, pull us in the room. How well do you know him? Asking him, Steezo, how well do you know that guy? We're like, yo, man, we just, we, we, we're a group. We've known each other for the while. What's wrong? So we had to learn and we had to call the label and the label's like, all right, we'll take care of it. So then they had to school us. Like, if someone asks that, just say you're here for promotions. Don't tell them you're getting paid. So we didn't know that. A couple of shows they did give us a few bucks but it wasn't a lot a lot of it was technically free and then the label the label would give us money just so we can keep eating so after some time like i said we met jazzy b from soul to soul i don't know if you remember that song yellow is the color of some rays keep on moving don't stop now i don't know if you remember that but we met quite quite a few people ultra magnetic came there just ice eventually came over he had a song called Latoya that was real big. He had quite a, Just Ice had some, a few songs. Uh, who else came over? I met Teddy Ted, Special K. They was out of uh, Hackensack, New Jersey. The Awesome Two. I met them in London. We met quite a few people in London when we were there, for the three weeks while we were there. But then we got homesick one day. We was like, we got to get out of here. Because after a while like our hair we was wearing high top fades but after a while like our facial hair when we went there we got our haircuts and stuff but we after a while in two weeks three weeks is everything's growing out so we're starting to look crazy we don't look neat anymore our sleep is kind of off you know we you know we go to bed at seven in the morning and half because our sleep is off just to get up at eight to, to sit down we had like every hour there was a magazine coming to talk to us or take us take pictures. So we like half sleep, like, yeah, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Yeah, man, you know, yeah, we started off, you know, telling our story. So, but we were half sleep the whole time. Um, we did Yo MTV Europe, Yo MTV Raps in Europe. Like that's their, it was called Yo MTV Europe. So how we had Yo MTV Raps, they had the same thing where we had Fat Five Freddy as a host. They had this girl, a lady named Sophia. So that was interesting to do that because I've never, like seeing TV done in that way. So that, you know, there was that whole thing was like my first time learning everybody we met. Um, sometimes it was, I had to get out of, you have to get used to it. Right. So I had to get out of the awe. Some people like I used to be a big public enemy fan. Next, you know, I, we're, we're at the runs how run house tour, run DMC and EPMD. And then we're in long Island and I'm on the side of the stage I turn around and it's Chuck D. I'm like, wow, Chuck D. You know, because I'm a fan too. Regardless of what we do, I'm still a fan of the culture and the music. So I had to go through that with quite a few people that we ran into. But my biggest like meeting was we was in Rochester, New York. Ice-T comes to, he's he's the headliner. And um, I, do, do you know who Ice-T is? Have you ever seen any of his album covers? Did you ever see the one called High Rollers where he has his first wife holding a pump shotgun? But and she was looking so good on an album. And I, I heard, um, I forget, what was her name, Vanessa or something? I forget her name. But um, she was looking like really nice on that album cover. But when she came through, she was with him. And Ice T spoke to us. He was very humble, very nice. And then she came up and she was, because we were actually, it was that sound check. So we were actually doing stuff on the turntables. And then she comes over to a little bit behind him, a few steps, out, you know, touched my hand and said hi. And I was like, that's her. <laughs> that's her from the album cover. Like, wow, she looked good in person too. So Darlene, I think Darlene was her name, Darlene. 
So, yeah, we, we did a lot of shows, um, you know, especially when we got back here to the States. Um, we did shows with L Cool J, Big Daddy Kane, Slick Rick, Special Ed, Kwame, Sweet T, Two Live Crew, Queen Latifah, Tribe Called Quest, Gangstar, Jazzo with Jay-Z, uh, who else was, Rob Bass, EU, EU was a go-go band from, uh, DC, DC, right. Uh, who else? It was a lot of different times at different shows. Um, MC Hammer, right before he, it was MC Hammer, Rodney O and Joe Cooley and three Oaktown 357. And I was like, we, I didn't know who Rodney O and Joe Cooley was. This is like, I think Beaumont, Texas. So I didn't know who they was. I'm like, we got to go on because we always go on first. Like, why do we always got to go on first? Like, at least go on second. We're getting better at this now, right? So, sure enough, on that tour, we could not. We had to go first. But we got so good at going first, and our and our show that we had put together would really get the crowd hype. And I think we were with ICM, Mark Siegel and Mark Cheatham. So we was with ICM Booking Agency, and um, they were really like, do they were doing good at like keeping us working, and it was kind of cool. Like, come home, chill for a week. Thursday or Friday, we out. Come back on Sunday. Chill Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe Thursday, Friday, we out. So that was kind of a cool life to like, on the weekends, we go in someplace different at the age of 20. Um, who else we do shows with? Uh, like I said, MCM or O-Town 357, we got used to opening up, um, doing shows to the point where we can we knew how to get the, to, to get the crowd hyped to where whoever's coming on next, you really better be able to step it up. Cause we got good because you start to hear the people scream and that's what when you're on tours and with other groups that's what they listen for especially when especially if you're last your first group comes on if you don't hear nothing like you hear the bump from the music but if you don't hear people screaming then uh you just figure like all right you figure you're gonna be the best but when you start hearing screaming it's like oh okay we we, we definitely got to come out because now you got to top that it has to progress. If you don't make the show progress, then uh, then, then people aren't going to bring you back on tour. So this is how we were getting our foot in the door to keep getting these shows. So even if we're the opener all the time, we're we're at least able to uh, get the crowd hype. So you know, L Cool J put us on the Nitro tour. Like we weren't on the tour bus, but we spot dates. Like all right, meet us here, meet us here, and that's fine. We we get our own way. We don't have to get because that's money that comes out your pocket, right? So we'll get there ourselves. But it was cool because L Cool J is not going to have nobody on tour with him that, one, you suck. Two, he, they make sure you ain't trying to diss him. Like, I ain't got nobody on tour that's be coming out dissing me because I was going to do that to Hammer. I was going to diss him when we did that tour. I bought a Hammer and everything. I was like, we about to diss Hammer. I wasn't thinking like that. and, and Not so much because Steezer was a dancer. Hammer was a dancer at that time. Now Hammer had please Hammer don't hurt him. This was right before he drops uh you can't the big you can't touch this song that really catapulted him, right? So this was right before then. And when we do our tours with Hammer, we did the show and I'm like, I'm gonna diss Hammer because we're gonna battle. That's in my head. We're gonna have Hammer of the West Coast and Steezo of the East Coast. So that was supposed to be how we were gonna try to go to the next level and get some some clout and some knowledge. But I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't, cause when you do stuff like that, like third base, the uh, rap group third base learned the hard way. Don't don't dishammer like that. 
So, but I'm glad I didn't because it could mess up your rapport and then we now would be kicked off the tour. You know what I mean? And don't get any more spot dates with Hammer. So, and on his on his tour, that Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him tour, we were the only East Coast group. So that was kind of weird, you know, going down South with a West Coast group and we're the only ones from the East Coast. But part of our show was we'll run through different dances. And like the Bismarck, Bismarck, Bismarcky, rest in peace, he had a dance. Pee Wee Herman had a dance. Uh, there was another dance that we would call the WAP that we would do. Slick Rick used to dance, like do that dance all the time. So we'll run through the dances and then EPMD would remind people, uh, excuse me, Steezo would remind people of the dance that he did. So then he'll throw on You Gots to Chill. He said, y'all remember me from this? And he'll, uh, the song, throw on the song, You Gots to Chill, Chill. Uh, and then and then he would start going into his dance and every place would go crazy because they see the video, but now they realize that's where I know him from, right? So also doing a part of these shows, it was two DJs. We weren't really carrying turntables. We would carry needles and then you had to like go to so-and-so. Sometimes it was only one set of turntables, but it's two of us. Well, like when we was in London, I was DJing. When we, when we started doing shows and the other guy was able to come with us, he would DJ, like I gotta give him some love, you know what I mean? So it's like, well, I did everything over across seas. Now we back here. I'm gonna chill, and you you put in some work. So we started coming up with that format. So it wasn't until that actually MC Hammer show one day we we're trying to we we're at practicing. We we're trying to figure out well, who's gonna DJ tonight or for this show. I was like, you know what? Just just let that let him DJ. I'm gonna come on stage with you, Steve. I'm gonna just give me the mic. So let's practice that, and I'll just like overdub your your vocals. Why sit and pick? Who's going to DJ all the time? So that changed our whole format to where now the other dude would DJ. I would come out with the mic, say a few words, depending on what song was introing us. Y'all ready for Steezo? Da -da 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 -da. And, then, and, then, and, then, and then Steezo would come out. And then, then we had that format was working. But when we were in Beaumont, Texas, and the first the DJ would introduce me. Yo, my boy Jim Slice to come out. Yo, we're going to say Jim Slice. Jim Slice. And I come out and then... And then the, the place went crazy. Like I hear like a lot of girls screams. Like so, I got like these little goosebumps all over. <laughs> and I think that's what's called being bit by the bug. It was like, oh shoot, for real, they like me, right? So I think it was like being bit by the bug. But I think that's what really, really. Oh, I like being up front now. Now I got the microphone. I'm on close to the stage. I can see front row. You can't really see the back. And I also learned not to pay attention to the people in the front row to overlook them. And look in the back, because, you know, sometimes you got all these people looking at you. It's like, and another part was funny about doing shows is that I didn't do anything back then, right, as far as drugs and alcohol. I was clean as a whistle. Steezel was a drinker at his age. He he was, uh, he'd drink with, like, some Budweiser. Anytime before a show, and I get it, before a show, he needed, like, a 40-ounce of Bud or a six-pack. Just let him get something to help him get loose. Uh, the other dude that was DJing, he was a weed smoker. I wasn't nothing. So in the hotel room, before the promoters come get us and bring us to the area, uh, I was like, let me get a Budweiser. Here, here. Let me get uh, a little puff. I didn't even really smoke this. Here you go. Just a little bit. I didn't need a lot. Drink a beer. And I'm like, oh, this, I, I feel good. <laughs> so go out on stage and it just, you don't care. You know what I mean? Because sometimes you see all these people and it's like, oh, shoot, hope we don't make mistakes. So you just got to get yourself to the point where you don't care. And if you make a mistake, just keep going because people don't know you made a mistake unless you really show it as a mistake. So you're out front now. 
Okay. So yeah. So now I'm out front. Steezo's DJ. Nah, this other dude named Chris. Okay. He he was the DJ. Um. So we this was the show where we gave it a try. Let's see how it works. And it, it actually came off. You know. So we was like, well, let's just be the format. I was like, well, I don't got a DJ. Like let him DJ. I kind of like it up front. You get to see everything too. You know. So I come out first. So that became our format. The he'll do. Chris would go up there and do some, you know, DJing stuff real quick, open up, do his little tricks, whatever he could do. Then he'll introduce me, then I'll come out, make people say, ho, go Steezo, go whatever, and then then introduce Steezo. Steezo will come out, and then we just go into the shows. So there was one show where we it was horrible. I don't even know if the people knew it was horrible, but I knew it was horrible. Because sometimes with some of the shows, like I know it's like taboo for hip-hop to, to, to rap over your vocals. But there were times when we had to do that because there wasn't like there was no back then all our shows was done on vinyl. So if we didn't have the vinyl, what we had to do is bring that this crazy noise album and play it off the album if people wanted to hear it and we needed to have more material. So what other groups would do, go back to the studio, get the instrumentals and then have dub plates made, but you can only play dub plates for so many times. But that's how they would do it since there was no actual um vinyl out there unless you started getting more and more singles then you'll have your instrumental on the back of your single right so you bring your singles with you and then you play the instrumentals from there then you can just you perform your songs but if you didn't have an instrumental on record for you you kind of had to do do it off the um, album so we had to do some of that but so we started introduce new songs to people now to make our show longer to make us worth it to for the pay this one show was just like, it was all crazy. Steezo's dancing, and we got the vocals going, and he's doing good, but he, he, instead of going back and grabbing the mic, he was feeling the dancing so much that he did a split. So now his vocals are going. So we want some real Milli Vanilli, so I, I'm just like saying the vocals. It's like, come on, get up, get up. And I'm saying the vocals, like going through it, and then he jumps in, he jumps in. I don't, I know it's messed up, but I don't know if people know it's messed up, right? So then he does another move, spin or something and back then it was late 80s so he had his beeper on him his beeper flies off of him like stop going out with all this stuff attached to you so the beeper flies off way into the audience i'm going well that beeper's gone this dude that was one of our security dudes vader big black guy too named vader man he jumps off the stage not like go down the side and walk around he comes front of the stage, jumps down, move. Like you could just see this big black dude moving people out the way. And I'm like, that's dangerous because people start punching you back. You know what I mean? I was like, I don't know why he's doing that. We're going through the shows and in my head, I'm going, I don't know why he's doing that. He's he, that beeper, like, sorry, can we swear? Yeah, it's fine. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, we'll get it. He'll get another one, whatever, because you ain't getting that back. Sure enough. Next thing you know, we're going through it. I see him at the front of the stage. I got it. <laughs> I got it. So he put it in his pocket. Now, instead of going around the side of the stage to come back up, he's climbing up the front of the stage. You talking about plumber's crack? <laughs> I was cracking. I said, this is, this is, per this is, it's, it's so messed up, but it was just so good, like funny to see. Like, I know this is not what it's supposed to be. You climbing up on stage, your pants are sliding off your butt. The whole world is seeing you and you are in front of the stage. Like, dude, why are you doing that? So in my head, he's messing up our show. But when I think about it afterwards, I'm like, this was hilarious. It's like one of my favorite shows was just bloopers everywhere. You know, like the whole audience seen your butt, man. You was just, 
why didn't you just walk around? Like, they'll let you come through. And even when you went down, like, he went and just jumped off the stage into the crowd. Like, they just moved out the way and let him come down. You just see him move, move. Like, he found that beeper. Like, oh, my goodness. Like, it's for it to go so bad. As long as you just, we didn't stop. As long as you keep going, the world probably don't, they didn't know. But it's just, I knew. So I'm thinking, like, we really screwed that show up. Because we were on the road. It's like, we screwed that show up. But, you know, that's just some of the things of, of being out on the road. Um, again, the Houdinis, people we did shows with. Kid and Play, MC Light, Bismarcky. Um, that particular one was 2010, too. When we did that, that was actually in Bridgeport, Connecticut. It was a thing called the Fresh Fest. And it was Slick Rick, Dougie Fresh, Houdini, Big Daddy Kane, uh, Nice and Smooth. So you guys are still doing shows up until then. Yeah. Yeah. That was the last show that I did with them before me and myself and Steezo had a fallout. Well, we ours was like twenty twelve. But we we've already had done that years ago, twice, and and fell out. Um so we fall out 89. Sometimes people can't. You want success, but you have to stay humble. You have to stay grounded. You can't let the way people treat you to inflate your head. And Steezo was not as much as you can say. And I'm not trying to knock him. Rest in peace to him. This is not a knock to him, but this is just he's not the only one. There's a lot of people who, who make these mistakes where you have the talent. And you wanted to get this. And then when, when you when you have it, people do treat you a certain way. Like you said, you're going to have fake friends. You're going to have people who are just good to you just to be around you. And you just can't feel like you're to everything. And and and, and I had to, my thing was to really try to keep him grounded. And he couldn't take it. And I think his head got inflated to the point where he started telling me, like, yo, hold, hold, hold on. Yo, you can't just... Yo, I'm telling you how we have to move, maneuver, and now you're telling me I'm wrong. Like, it'll tell, you know, not that you have to agree with everything, but it got to the point where if I can't speak to you, nobody else out here can reach you and speak to you. If I'm losing, the, you're, you're way gone. And that's what happened with him to the point where it was like, yo, sleeping bag's about to fold. You know, that, that was the whole thing with us. Like, you know, we, we had an argument because, you know, I'm, I couldn't speak to him the way I wanted because we had company with us. Dude named Big Head from Brooklyn. But you know, I'm all night I'm going, I got to talk to him about this. We got to get ready to move. Sleeping bag's going to fold. We got to get ready to move. And um, it was just something that happened that night to where he just, I don't know. We just had an argument. I was like, yo, let, take me home. Let me out the car. I'm like, later for this. Like, you can't, I can't speak to you. I can't reach you. You, because people are treating you because you are Steezo, but we had to put your name up front, even though technically, mentally, we're a group. But you are Steezo, and people treat you as the only one. But that's what's filling him in his head. Like, he's Steezo bringing his friends with him. You know what I mean? Nah, nah, we're, we're kind of already with him. But we didn't go as a group name, but the Steezo was the group name. It's an oxymoron. Because Steezo is the group name, but he is Steezo too at the same time. So, But that's what we had to do to try to get on, to market, to where something's going to catch. Coming off of EPMD. It's also a long time to be on tour with somebody. Yeah. I mean, this was when we was home, right? Oh, we were at yeah. home. This was during one of the weekdays or something, and we were at home, and we just had an argument because I couldn't reach him. And I, and I had to tell him, like, we're, we're about to be over. 
but we had to end up having an argument where I never said anything. I just got out the car like, all right, fine, because this shit's almost over anyway. <laughs> so and, and eventually it started dwindling down. He was able to keep living off the aftermath of it, like, you know, but eventually he just never came back because, dude, you got to we had to jump to another record label, even if it was wild pitch or profile, like we got to make some moves someplace. So we know from 89 to 92, we didn't talk. It was like the fall of 89 because we toured all summer together, but it was get, coming to be the cold months. It was like, cause I know we have jackets like coats on again. So it was like fall of 89. And then we had that argument. I was like, all right, fine. You know what? Let me out. Take me home. And when I closed that door, I said, Lord, I'm in my head. I'm going, you don't even know this is over. It's over. It's about to fall. And I knew it was coming because it was somebody else said at the record label. So we didn't really get back together until like 92. So that's when you go on YouTube, you see a song that we did with the independent label called a uh, song that we did called Bop Your Heads. So that, well, Bop Your Heads came out in 94. So it took us two years to, to get ourselves to get something out there. So we found some dudes with a little small label, had enough money for a, a video and they, they put it out there for us, you know? And that's what we was able to do that. We did a few shows here and there, but it wasn't like the first time. We didn't have that engine behind us. Um, and then again, we did that in 92, we, 92 to 95. Then 95 came and we kind of, again. And then uh, from 95, we didn't really start speaking. Me and Stizo didn't start speaking again until like 2003. And that was based on Dooley. So, you know, I don't want to get, I'm not going to go get too deep into Steezo and why we, things that were happening. Oh, yeah, you don't, uh, yeah. but people starting to use that open sample of It's a New Day. Yeah, we saw. Was oh. that freaking you guys out or what? <laughs> yes and no. Yes, that is actually happening, but in the studio with Paul C, uh, rest in peace, Paul C, he helped engineer our album. I've seen people online say that Paul C, Produced Diesel's Crazy Noise album. No, he did not produce Diesel's Crazy Noise album. He did engineer the shit out of it, though. Like, we weren't working those boards. We didn't know. Only thing we could do was say, yo, play this sample or sample this. We didn't know anything about the SP-12 by Emu, that drum machine. We didn't know anything about that. Paul C. did. He set it up. You know, he did that whole thing. And we just put take a record, sample this, sample this, sample this. Like, let's make it all blend together. So, and he, and he helped us with that. But, um... I'm losing my train of thought. So it's a new day. It's a new day. Yes, you know, as the story goes, Dooley went to Miss Brown's house, went through her records. He found the record. He had it. Um, we had already sampled it and had it looped, so we knew how it sound. Steezo had an idea to do Atomic Dog. He always said that I want to do Atomic Dog by um, Parliament Funkadelic George Clinton. So. Um, you know, that's a whole nother story within its own. So we go to 1212. Technically, Dooley was supposed to be using it, but Steezo ended up using it. And then it, the sample, the, the record from Group Skull Snaps wasn't loud, like the recordings of that album. It's a great album, but some, a couple of the songs, It's a New Day is one, wasn't loud. So Paul C. loved the beat because back then you had Impeach the President, Big Beat by Billy Squire, um, Substitution. You know, you had certain break beats out there that people knew. 
It's a New Day was swept under the rug. So here's where Paul C. was so phenomenal is because after we sampled it and had it going, he said, okay, are these all the elements you want in the song? These are all the instruments and everything, blah, blah, blah. He was like, do you guys mind if I if I um, put something into it? So I was like, yeah, all right, go ahead. put yeah. Well, I mean, everybody was like, yeah, do what you think. So he sits down and he just starts waking it up. Like it was already low and he starts giving it some bottom and some body to it to where as soon as it comes on, we put it on the big speakers, it's boom, boom, tap, 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 boom, boom, tap. So we're listening to it like, damn. And he even asked us, he was like, how do you want it to start now? Do you want the song to start with the atomic dog and the skull snaps within each other? Or do you just want that breakbeat to come on? We were like, just put that breakbeat on because we knew DJs, they need that breakbeat to cut and scratch. So as long as that comes out and opens everything up, DJs have got no choice but to play this single. They're going to love that right there. You know, so that's what happened. We opened up with the It's My Turn breakbeat and then Skull Snaps, uh, the Atomic Doll comes in and, you know, Steezo does his lyrics, blah, blah, blah. That comes out. And now during the process, we was like, what if everybody started sampling this? We were just laughing about it. it for real talk, we was like, what if people start sampling this and blah, blah, blah. You never know. They might, yeah, they might. Somebody probably going to sample it. Word, ha, 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 But now we're moving on. Let's finish this album, right? It took two years. We dropped in 89. By 1990, <coughs> excuse me, by 1990, a group called Organized Confusion, Prince Poe and Pharaoh Monch, they came out with a song called Who Stole the Last Piece of Chicken? Now, they had the original record, right? Everybody else sampled from us. Even if you find a reprint or find an original Skull Snaps album, you're, and you got the Steezo 12 inch, you're gonna look at both and go, I'm just gonna sample the Steezo 12 inch because it's already loud and it's out there for you. So everybody samples Steezo's 12 inch. So, Pharaoh Monch, Organized Confusion, they do their song called Who's Still the Last Piece of Chicken? It was okay. And you can hear where they had the, they looped it right from the actual record themselves, right? And it wasn't until like 1992. I think Pharaoh Monch and them came out in 91. Um, Pharaoh Monch and, and Prince Poe organized confusion was their group name. And I and I think they came out in 91. So it wasn't until like 1992. Here comes Gangstar, Premier, DJ Premier and Guru with a song called Take It Personal. Premier chops it. Because we were going to do that too. Let's go back to Skull Snaps. Now let's chop the beat, right? Instead of just using it as a loop, let's do both. Because we knew about chopping it back. That was really starting to be a thing. But Steezo, we were thinking about it. We are discussing it. And Steezo go, ah, we already used it. Let's move on to something else. So that's what we did. And we never really went back. But Premier does. He doesn't just loop it. He takes it from the Steezo. You could tell it came from Steezo 12-inch. And he takes it, and he and he and there's a song called "Take It Personal" by Gangstar, and you you'll see. I don't know if you know that song, but that's the product. That's when we were like, "Oh snap, it's really out there." And then and then Diamond D of the DITC crew out of the Bronx, he does it on his first album for a song. Sally got his one track mind. Uh, the Far Side uses it in their way for a song called "She Keeps On Passing Me By." So like by '92, it just kept coming. Kept coming, Lords of the Underground, Black Moon. It just keeps coming. Everybody's using it. Ice T used it. Somebody, whoever remixed it on a song of his, and it just keeps coming. And next, you know, I'm watching the first Matrix when the girl in the red walks in, and this guy who produced the song from Australia, I forget his name. He was a producer in Australia, and the song didn't blow up in Australia, so they used that song 
for the Matrix, when they see this girl in the red dress, the first one, and his song is using the Skull Snaps beat. And then just from there, it just kept going. And it was just like, wow. So um, it, it, it was crazy to see, you know, and it, I, now, okay, so me and Steezo, again, we break up 1995-ish. We stop speaking again. I go with more of my life. He goes on with his. We get back together in like 2003. At least we meet and we, we talk to each other. We're friendly now, right? We're not hanging out or nothing, but, you know, what's up, man? What's up? You know, blah, blah, blah. Leave it like that. And it wasn't until like 2006 when we got cool because I was going to see this show. I was, Slick Rick came to Toes. So on my way to see Slick Rick at Toes, next you know, there's a radio promotion. Steezo's on the show now like word okay so i'm at the show you know steezel comes in i'll be cool now so i say what up to him it's like yo jim what up man yo you know you're coming on stage right you know you i was like for real i'm coming okay i'll come up there so he already had his crew who was doing stuff with i was just off on the side standing there like just playing around you know what i mean so then so it, and the other guy was there too but he wasn't he was like me we we're both on the side of the stage just walking around just messing around with people yo what's going on so um but then the next show was like 2008. He calls us for a show with Brand Nubians, and he goes, "Yo, I, I you know, what I was doing with the uh, the other two terrible T DJ True T and Tall T, what I was doing with them, you know, it was cool, man. But it ain't nothing like having y'all. Like I gotta have that original. So we, we gotta do this show with with um with Brand Nubians. So I was like, you know, I'm down. Let's do it, man. It's been a minute. Let's get down. So we did the show with Brand Nubians, and that came off hot. Um, and we was cool, you know, we've been cool then. And then a little later on, I got into some podcasting with radiocene.com and nobody was doing it like we was doing it back then. I'm 2010, which we did another fresh, fresh show in 2010. So Steezo goes, um, you know, it'd be hot if we were able to find that group skull snaps and like, do a, a documentary about them and how we released it. And this is the group. If we can find the original group, he was like, nobody's ever done that. You never seen anybody in hip hop with all these songs that are samples that people are using to create their hip hop records to go back and find actual group that we sampled and give them their kudos. I was like, yeah, you know, that would be hot. But in my head, I'm like, ain't nobody find those skull snaps. Where are we going to find skull snaps at? Sure enough. I, he, when he told me the name, like, we got to look for this name, Sam Cully, Irv Waters, at least these two right here. So now I'm like, let me see if I can work my magic. Like, I'm, I work in computers. Like, so let me see if I can find how to white tag words to find where these people are. So funny, through the Internet, I was able to find, like, well, Sam Cully actually lives in Norwalk, Connecticut, but he wasn't living there. Steve's will use another method. I'm not going to put that out there, but he used another method to find them, Right. He called in a favor. Somebody did something. It was like, yo, he lives such and such and such and such place. Cool. Now I'm working in Bridgeport, right? So now he's living in Bridgeport. So I we go by his house and he's not home, right? So I go, you know, the next day comes. I'm at work. I said, yo, I call Steve. I said, yo, for lunch, I'm going to go by his house again. Because the lady said, the, her, the next door person, it was a two-family house. So the lady said, no, he usually leaves for lunch. And comes back in the afternoon. Something like that. Or usually he leaves. No, he leaves. He gets up in the morning. He leaves in the morning. Then he's back around lunch time. So I remember that. So I call Cesar. I say, yo, I'm going to go see if I can catch him now because it's almost lunch. So I go there and I see this guy walking, walking. I'm like, that could be him right there. 
Now he's looking at me like, you know, who's this? Because I'm going slow creeping. So I'm watching. I said, if he goes up the stairs, that's him. So sure enough, he starts going up the stairs, Sam Cully. And I make a quick U-turn in Bridgeport. And he's looking. So I jump out the car. I'm going beep, beep, because I don't want him to go in the house. So I'm going beep, 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 beep. So I pull up almost damn near on the curb. Right? So he's looking like, oh, crap. So I jump out the car. Are you Sam Cully? <laughs> he was going, I don't know. It depends who's asking. So then, because I, I was just trying to make sure he doesn't go in the house. So so now I'm, I'm halfway out the car, a foot still in the car. So I get my foot out the car, close the door, and I'm like, you know, introduce myself. My name's Jim Slice, you know. No, first I said, I said, are you Sam Cully? He said, depends on who's asking. I said, are you Sam Cully from Skull Snaps? You said, I don't know. Depends on who's asking, right? So I said, well, my name's Jim Slice. Um, I used to be in a group named Steezo where we released a beat for Skull Snaps. And um, we were interested on in doing a documentary. So we we're trying, trying to connect with you. We came here yesterday. Your neighbor told us to come back today. So I just want to sit down and talk to you for a minute. He was like, well, if you're mentioning Skull Snaps and you're mentioning that beat, come on in the house. Let's talk. And then that's when from there, I I, 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 I thought I was going to get fired because I was supposed to be back at work at 1 o'clock. I didn't come back to work till like 3 o'clock. And it was like nobody even knew I was going, right? I sat there and talked to him for like three hours. But he, I got his number. He got my number. I went back to work. I called Steezel. Yo, I got him. I got him. So we get out of work. He's waiting for us. Come up this way to Bridgeport or down this way to Bridgeport. And, and, and then we're going to go over his house. And that's what we did. And we sat down again. And we spoke to him and talked to him. And we built with him. And then from there, he said, I'm going to take you all to the Bronx. I want you to meet everybody else. You know, well, Irv was in the Bronx. And Tom Price was in Queens. You know, and they, they were a group before that called the Diplomats. So... Yeah, and then, and then from there we just we just got going on it. And it's funny because Irv Water's niece just contacted me today on Instagram. It's like introducing herself, like I'm, I'm my name is Karma and I'm Irvin Water's niece and I want to put this documentary out because the documentary never actually came out due to other things that I won't go deep into, but it still exists, just sitting on a hard drive, you know. And then uh. And then that's been it. And and then there was a fallout there, which was dumb, you know, with another fallout um, where something was put. The fallout was over T-shirts, but Sam put it into the documentary like that. Those are two different businesses, Sam. So that's why the documentary just now is just sitting on my hard drive. But yeah, the, the, now Irvin Water's niece wants to uh, try to help put it out. Life goes on. Um where are we now? That was 2010. So now I'm kind of just working, right? I'm not doing anything at this point. I was doing a radio scene radio show called Flashback Fever. There's some stuff on YouTube. You can look up Flashback Fever Radio and you'll see clips of me doing certain things where back then you see all kind of podcasts now in 2023, but back then you didn't see any of that stuff the way we were doing it. Too bad radio scene didn't last to keep it going. Um, and then I kind of just faded. I, I did some some other music in, in the 2000s. Because I did fade. Because in 97, I had to stop and go, what am I going to, later for music, what am I going to do? So I had to go back to school, you know, get that right, and then get myself a, a job that I can like. Not just a job, but more of a career. So that's how I got into information technology. So I knew with that, wherever I go in this world, I could potentially find a job because I can learn about a lot of this stuff. Right. So I did that until like 2004. So that's 97. I got a job in the field 
So now, at least I know, even if music never happens again for me, I'm okay, right? I can move out my mother's house now, right? So it wasn't until like 2005, this artist from uh, somebody I knew called me like, yo, I want you, I got this management company, I want you to help me manage this artist called D Phenomenal. He was out of Long Island. So I said, all right, well, I'll help with that. I'm more in the back end, that's fine. So D Phenomenal, was down, he was gonna be down with DITC, digging in the crates, crew out of the Bronx, before they all split up. He got there at the very end. And I remember hearing AG from Showbiz and AG, Andre the Giant, talking, introducing the phenomenal, saying what they had coming up next. But it never materialized. So 2004, we start, I start helping this guy, um, his thing, his group, his management company's called Anger Management. And his artist was the phenomenal. So I'm on the back hanging. So as doing that, now I'm realizing like I'm using my clout to get us certain places. So in the 2000s, like I stopped in like 97. So here in like 2004, 2005, like using my try to, yo, I'm Jim Slicer. Word, yo, come on in. Like, oh, shoot. Okay, like I'm seeing like some of it is making some moves. So I'm like, all right. So I did that until like 2006. And then from there, I kind of left that after they did their thing. Cause honestly with the dude D phenomenal, I started seeing traits of him that I was seeing in Steve's. So I'm like, oh, this isn't gonna go right. I already see where this mentality ends up. And he had some of that. I'm like, all right. And I just quietly just went my own way. So I'm, I'm, I'm out. Um, so then I started working when I got my little cousin and I started, I never really went to no record labels or nothing like that. I just started as YouTube started progressing and people started doing their own videos. I'm like, we could just have fun with this by doing music. So you look up Jim Slice or Mr. Slice and Boo Slick, Jim Slice and Boo Slick on YouTube. You can see some materials, uh, videos that we did, but it just, they don't look good because they were on tape. And then when you try to convert the tape, they were grainy back then. This is the cusp of digitizing and cameras now having the smart cards and stuff like that. So we're on the cusp of that. So the guy that was doing the videos, he was still using the that, uh, that tapes, right? Back then. So that was the mid 2000s for me. And then I did that all the way up to like 2008. And then I got burnt out. You know, you're doing these showcases here and doing certain things and calling people. But after a while, like, if that was my day job, then it was been different. But I got a day job. This is at night and this is keeping me up later. And I'm tired at work trying to get make phone calls at work from work. You know what I mean? So I burnt out like from. It took two years before I burnt out, like 2008. I'm like, all right, I'm tired of putting money into this and I'm tired just right now. I need to just chill. Everybody that I'm around, they're just making me do everything. You know, everybody wants to ride. Everybody want to be an artist. Everybody want to rap, but I got to do all the work. Like, it doesn't work that way. But I tried and I burnt out to the point where I'm tired now. I don't want to have to make no phone calls. I don't want no responsibilities anymore. So I stopped and then, and then uh, you know, but me and Steezo and stuff at this time, we were still cool. That's why I said here in 2010, we get together and do the Fresh Fest show at the Harbor Yard that it was called in Bridgeport. So that was a big show. And then in 2012 is when I now, 2011, I started doing Flashback Fever Radio on radioscene.com. And then 2012, Steezo starts talking about the documentary. Sometimes I would go to the, his barber shop and check him out. And we we put that in effect, and that took us two years to do. Um, we, we started in 2012, and it was probably done by 2014. And then and then we, we fell out again. 
And then that that was it. Then he moved down south. Yeah, he moved down south before we fell out. And then we we just fell out. I didn't know he was not feeling well. I don't even know if he knew it. I don't know. I know I seen a picture somebody posted on Facebook and I was like, geez, he got big because he, he, he went down south and gained some weight. I guess he was eating good. And I was just surprised. Like, that's not him. Like, that's not how we are. Like, every time you never gain weight like that living here in New Haven or, or in the East Coast like that up in the Northeast. You go down south and you get comfortable and, you, and then you just gain all this weight. Like, you're supposed to be a dancer. You're not going to be doing as much dancing, but you don't need all that weight on you. So I think the weight helped, like, did, didn't help his heart or something like that. So it ended up being a heart issue with him. And then he unfortunately passed away. So, and then... You know, his, you know, I got the call. Someone called me like, yo, Steezo passed away. And it just took time because I'm on Facebook and me and the other guy that was in the group were on the phone talking. And I'm sitting there. It's, it's not really believable yet. Even though I know it's for real because he's sniffling and Facebook doesn't know. I put the You Got the Chill video up there like, yo, Steezo, my dude, this is where it all started for you. But nobody got it. So then the guy, Chris, that I'm on the phone with, the other dude, I think he throws something up on Facebook. Then this other guy, Cutmaster Joey D, sees it, and then he posts, R.I.P. Steezo. Then you start seeing comments, what, what? And then people just, and next thing you know, about an hour, hour and a half later, you just start seeing all these pictures of Steezo coming. Out. That's when I just started like, oh, man. You know, that's when it really hit me. Like, this shit is now real, like, you know, and it's just been so surreal, I guess. It's just, just like it's not true. It's not true. But it is true. You know, so then you just see people doing certain things for him. They put made a mural of him, star tire. Um, now, in 2016, Steezel passed away in 2020. In 2016... The Connecticut Against Violence organization started recognizing some musical people of Connecticut. So myself and the Skinny Boys and, you know, others who've done things were there to get these, like, certificates from the office, the mayor's office in Bridgeport. So that's why I see the Skinny Boys. So now I'm, like, trying to redeem myself a little bit. Like, that Skull Snaps thing didn't work. But I want to do another one, like, something I can work with. I don't want to have to run to New York to get everybody. Skinny boys could probably be a little story. So this is where the skinny boys come in because they're right here. I don't have to, you know, before we had to run to the Bronx and Queens and all these places to get all these different producers for the Skull Snaps one. But um, I was like, skinny boys are right here. It's probably be a decent story to work with. We need something more about Connecticut hip hop. So I asked him that in 2016. It was like, we'll think about it. We'll, we'll see. We'll let you know. I didn't get a call till like 2018 out of the blue. Superman J calls me like, yo, we're going to do it, man. We're going to do it. And I think maybe it was after that NWA dropped their Bioptic film first. I think maybe it was after, it was something that inspired them to want to do it. So it might have been around that time. And it was hard for me because I don't put all, I just bought this house in 2018. So I'm like, I just dumped this money into this house. And I'm buying all of this stuff. And now you want to run out and do, do it. Like I got to, it's going to take a minute. You know, but we did get started in 2018, and then it was just like I couldn't go further without Jockbox because it would be incomplete. And all year round, people, well, what happened to Jockbox? How come he isn't in it? Where's Jock at? Where's Jock at? I'm like, we can't do it without Jock. Like, he's part of the, 
You know, that's like Santa Claus not having his white beard. There's something about it that goes with it. And you can't get a Happy Meal without the toy. Like, where's the toy? That's what Happy Meals used to come with at McDonald's. You know what I mean? So you had to have jock boxes. Like, without jock boxes, it's going to be incomplete and you're not going to be happy. And twice I tried to do it, like, all right, later for jock. Well, maybe try to find some way to add them later. But it, my, it just wasn't there. Like, the things weren't for me. So it just, I don't know, we've just been sitting for years. But now I finally got jock. And now all of a sudden, now I'm, now I'm writing down the treatment. Like, it's all coming back now. And I'm realizing, like, even things, which is cool because other things have happened which changed the storyline and how I'm going to bring it across because now I got this material to work with and this and that. So um, so that's been my life as far as um, hip-hop and the trials and tribulations. You know, I did try at one point, 1991, to go get a record deal, and I did have two things. I had Stu Fine with Wild Pitch. Well, not really Stu. It was a guy named Jeffrey Sledge that worked there. And this is how funny the music business is, because when he was at Wild Pitch, he was messing with me, because I went there and dropped off my demo tape. He calls me back, like, yo, I heard your demo tape. I had this one, like, house song up there, because this is when Jungle Brothers did a house song on theirs, and I thought, this is where, you know, house music is really coming off. He didn't like that. He was like, you're like a b-boy to me. So the other two songs I do like, the house music song, I get why you did it, but that's not you. You're like a b-boy to me. So he said, well, work on some other stuff for me, too. I said, all right, cool. So I started building up some new material, and then um, by the time I got the new material back to him, I called for him. Oh, Jeffrey Sledge don't no longer work here. Like, for real? I talked to the owner, Stu Fine. He said, I heard your demo tape. He left your name with me. I listened to it, and I'm just not, it's not for me. You, you, know, you got the talent, but, you know, it's just not for me here, and blah, blah, blah. I was like, all right, thank you. Then I had a cousin who was actually in a sort of kind of relationship with Queen Latifah because they was going to school in Jersey. And, um, you know, this is when Latifah was just dropping her first album, Ladies First and all of that. And um, so she's probably, she, he was probably like her last boyfriend. I don't know if he's the reason. I don't, anyway. So, but he was in actually real relationships with her and um, relations with her. And I gave him my demo tape. I said, yo, let Latifah hear this because they had the flavor unit going, her and Shaquem and the rest of them. So he comes back and go, you know, she likes it. She says you use the word I too much, but she can help you. She'll help you get a deal with Tommy Boy. She wouldn't suggest it, but if you want to go to Tommy Boy, she'll help you. So I could have went to Tommy Boy, right? So my cousin goes, well, I'm going to see her in a week. So you got one week to make up your mind, and I'll let her know. So I think about it, like, should I? You know, I'm going to do it anyway, right? So I go tell him, like, yeah, go ahead. Tell, I'll go to Tommy Boy, even if it's just for one album or something. Um, or maybe two, whatever. I go to Tommy Boy, and um, I see him, and he goes, man, I ain't messing with her no more, man. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, can you at least call her and tell her I'm down? But, yo, I was like, man. So those are the two scenarios where I could have probably popped off on my own. Um, but then during that time, too, at the age of 23, I had my first son. I had my son. So then that was another pull me like now nah, I got to make sure I keep a day job at this point you know I can't run and be free to run everywhere I got to work to help support my newborn so yeah that was like the early 90s I forgot to add that part in as far as my timeline and now today here I am um, working with the skinny boys finally about to do something I've also got some other material for for hip-hop in Connecticut in a whole 
you know, some people can fake like they're from New York and do whatever, but I just decided like, you know, let me do something about for Connecticut because it's needed. And, you know, there's a, New York has a conglomerate of stars. Like, I'm not going to stand out in New York. I probably could, but there's going to be a lot. Buster Rhymes going to come at me. Like, hey, you see how they treat each other, right? Fat Joe's got something to say. Like, they treat each other like that. There's not a lot that in Connecticut. So I said, you know, I'll stand out more being from Connecticut. Whether they hate us or love us, I have my name attached to a main state, too. I'll be a peep, pipsqueak in New York or L.A., but I stand out when people mention hip hop in Connecticut. So that's where I am today now, currently working on the Skinny Boys documentary. DJ Mr. Magic, his name was Tony Pearson. He dropped a single in 1981 and then had like Connecticut. And, and that's how I kind of started getting influenced too because this song was like in part of it. He says, some people say Connecticut can't rock, but I come to make you hip and hop. And I'm like, Connecticut's in a rap song. You know, I didn't realize he was local. I just knew this is 1981. Run DMC wasn't even out yet. Africa Bambada wasn't doing anything. Well, not on records yet. Back then, it was just still was just Curtis Blow and maybe Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, I think Sugar Hill Gang was already out too. So, and then he did that song. So for me, it was a big deal coming out of New Haven or Connecticut because we heard it all the time. And then he put out another song with this little kid. Uh, I think it was his nephew from West Haven, Connecticut, named Pookie Blow. And he had a song called Get Up, Get Up, Get Up, Get Up and Go to School. So when I was young, I would hear that song every morning because the radio. And it's funny, when I, when I interviewed um, Tony Pearson, a.k.a. Mr. Magic from Connecticut, he would say that. He's like, you know, I had this song and I had problems with it. I wanted people to play it like in the afternoons or at night. But they just kept playing it in the morning. Like I could not get them to stop. I, want, I don't mind them playing it in the morning because I get it. You got to get up and go to school. But. They will never play it at night. And I said, yo, it's funny because me coming up as a kid, I kept hearing it every morning. You know what I mean? Get up, get up, get up, get up and go to school. Well, so, you know, and first, and that was like Connecticut actually has the first kid rapper, Pookie Blow, before any crisscross or any little Bow Wows. It was actually Pookie Blow. He wasn't that great, but neither was rapping back then. It wasn't lyrical back then. It was like, get up, get up. I said, you know, hip to the hop to the beat to the bop the shoe bop we bop do it was just like that type of style so um it was still a big deal to us so you know and i think that's it you know where i'm at now today i'm on facebook like everybody else i'm on ig jim underscore slizzer man facebook as jim slice um and just working on documentaries and hopefully soon once i get this storyline out with tony pearson and his story of 81 then Waterbury had Jigalette, 1984. She was on Fever Records with Sal Abitalo. Um, so she did drop a single. She's in the 1980, was it 85 or four? The movie Crush Groove came out. She didn't have any speaking lines, but she was up close and personal because she played Run's friend or girlfriend. So she's in the limousine with Run and she's sitting there and you know she's from Connecticut, from Waterbury. She didn't go too far either. Then the Skinny Boys come out in 1985. They did their thing. They had three albums. And then us as Steezo, we came out in 1989. So I'm only hitting that part with my Connecticut hip hop from those early stages to 1989. Mm -hmm. And then I'll figure out where it should go there. Like if there's a second part of that, where would that go? Also, by 2012 too, myself and this friend I know named uh, Gary Thomas G's Records, we would run around 2012 when I had my radio show, I would try to get certain DJs to come and perform on 
on um, Flashback Fever Radio, RadioStream.com. I had DJ Melstar, uh, quite a few other DJs. Um, DJ Easy Rock used to be down with D uh, Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock. Rob Bass came down. This was before he passed. Rest in peace, um, DJ Easy Rock Harlem. Um, and so I, I was doing that. So I would go to Cortona Park in certain places. So me and Gary G's Records, we would go together, you know, and just little, even just different events here and there, if the inside or outdoors, whatever. And one day driving home, we was like, yo, why don't we just do something like that, but bring it here to Connecticut? So that's where we came up. We was driving in the car, and that's where we came up with the name Legends, Beats, and Grooves. And that's when we started doing, putting together, having DJs come here and get down. And, you know, certain DJs, you maybe just do blends, you do tricks, you know, um, and you just be a party-type DJ, and everybody just come have a good time. So that was another part of hip-hop that I helped bring into Connecticut at that time. And this is like mid 2000s, 2010s. Yep. I think I got out of it like around 2018, I think. Because for me, financially, I had to do other things. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's it's coming here in a couple months. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's in, when we did Holyoke was the best one. Philadelphia wasn't that It was good, the show, but the turnout wasn't that great. But I don't know who's in charge of promotion at the one in Philly. Mm -hmm. And we most of them else was Wallingford, Hamden, Connecticut, Wallingford, um, taking it to different places. I know he did one in Green. I think he took it to Greenfield, Mass. But yeah, like you said, it's coming here to Westport, so it should be okay. Yeah. Uh, real quick, last question: advice on. Um, oh man, if you're looking at, I don't know, if you're young and looking to get started in music or just anything, creative advice. I don't know, man. You you've you've done a lot, so. I would say always be humble. Never let your art make your head big because the same people you meet on the way up are the same people you're going to meet on the way down. This one artist, not going to say no names, this one artist real quick, just to give an example, was looking down on this dude that was working for a video company. And he just, to him, this artist looked at him like, you're just a little video company worker, treating him like crap, not knowing that he also had his dreams, but you still got to work your day job, right, to earn some money now. So meanwhile... This dude that he's looking down on starts his magazine. This, this is what he's doing on the side while he's working for this video company. This magazine blows up. So now this artist has got to go to this guy. Everybody's in front on these covers of his magazine. Now you're never going to get the cover to this magazine because you treated him like crap when you thought he was nobody. But now he's got the number one magazine in hip hop right now. And you want to be on the front cover. Guess what? You can't. So you always stay humble. You're never better than nobody else. You're always going to have your turn doing it. It's hard to get there, but it's even harder to maintain it. You know, you might be asked to compromise certain things that your values and certain things that you believe in because this industry could be very wicked depending on who you're doing business with, right? It's not, they look corporate because they hang around corporate people. They buy corporate buildings because they're making millions of dollars and they rent out corporate places to do business. But at the same time, it's not, there's a lot of uncorporate mentalities in there, no matter who they are. Some of them will gangster you with some friends in the gun and the back alley, hang you off a balcony somewhere. And then some will just do it to you with a contract and a smile and a shirt and tie. They, they just, you just got to be willing to, if you want that life, to do it. The industry is different. You can make your own name now. I mean, some of you see some people clout chase out there and do things to look to get a lot of, you know, shares or likes on the Internet. And you got to find your niche and stick with it. 
Um, you know, just know your values of who you are and who you want to be. Don't let nobody change you for their purposes. You know, if you find changing yourself change because you makes you better and it makes your talent better because somebody out there is going to like it and give you a chance. You just got to move around. It could be tiresome. You might want to take a break, but never give up. It doesn't matter how old you are. The newer generation, yo, you old head, you old head. If you rap, you rap, you rap too. You can't rap no more. There's always going to be an audience for you. If you 60 and rapping, guess what? There's a bunch of 60-year-olds. I mean, as we're having this interview right now, there's 50, hip-hop is 50 years old, which means there are people in their 50s who still listen to hip-hop. Your ears do not say, well, I'm this age, I can't hear it no more. Unless you turn to gospel, that's a different story. But other than that, you're still going to enjoy it. There's going to be 50-year-olds who are going to rap for other 50-year-olds because maybe they got to hear a song about AARP. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's whatever. 20-year-olds are going to rap, and there's going to be 20-year-olds that's going to listen to what they're going through because they can relate to the time frame. But it's never over. It's never over. So... Just keep doing what you're doing. Make use of the internet. Make use of people. Always network. Stay humble. You know, and just try to find your investors and people who believe in you to invest to help you go further. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for having me. Thanks, man.